Hey, Randy. <laughs> well, so you're still with Rick, huh? Still here. You in there? Yeah, just knock. Just, just look, just, just, just put them in the wardrobe, all right? What's it gonna hurt? Then if you need them, you got them, all right? <laughs> then I gotta have a conversation with that wardrobe assistant, and man, she's a bitch. I just don't, right, please. Look, I... look Randy, I, I'm asking you to help me out, man. If the, if the answer's no, the, the answer's no. Not, not no with excuses. Do you expect me to talk? episode 158 of Do You Expect Us Talk? I'm Becca and as always joined by my fellow co-hosts Chris and Dave. How are you both? Good evening folks. Uh, good evening everyone. I don't have a quippy pun. I can't think of one. Sadly. Well, I was I, expecting I, a quip from you Chris. I'm disappointed. Well to ah, be no. honest I, 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 it would have been the wrong film because I just wanted to say bomb journal. The only example I couldn't really think of it for this film was like, uh, like we love pussy or something like that and I thought <laughs> I can't quite I, I kind of wanted to deliver in the, in the Brad Pitt of like yes we do. <laughs> you notice how much his cadence is the same as his character in um, Inglorious Bastards in this film? Yeah, they sound quite similar. I think so. I mean, obviously, it's the same voice, but his he's, intonations are all the same. It's coming from that, I don't know, coming from the Deep South or Southern State to Hollywood. I don't even know where he's from, actually, Brad Pitt. I'm going to have a quick look. No, fun fact. Uh, <laughs> Oklahoma. Oh, well, there we are, then. Do you think, given that this is like Tarantino's like shared universe type thing, that, um, Maybe. that you think you know he's actually related to... Uh, the character in the... I haven't thought about that, but it, it, is a, it, is, it is a sort of shared alternate reality, isn't it? Um, I think it's in, his, it's in his main universe, not his movie-movie universe, if you like. So mm. it's possible. He's actually based... Uh, the Brad Pitt character in this cliff is based on... Um, <clears throat> well, the way this conversation went, and I'll give full credit because I listened to the... Um, <laughs> I listened to the Now Playing review earlier earlier on because it's been in my phone for about two fucking weeks because they got it earlier. So I had to listen to it earlier, and I'll, I'll quote them as little as possible because I, I didn't really want any other... I've read very few reviews. Um, you don't want it to colour your opinion and I went in I went in knowing nothing because I had this feeling he would change the ending. What actually happened to the Tate family, and I didn't... Or the Tate, or Sharon Tate, rather. The Tate modern? No. Um, <laughs> Tate Brin? No. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we, at no point did Tom Cruise climb up inside it. No. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, Sharon might know about that. But, um, I had a feeling and I just didn't want to know. So, you know, Avengers, I, I went into Endgame knowing quite a bit. didn't bother me. If I find out, I'd rather not, but if I find out what happens in the Bond film, I don't really mind. I, I'm not that sensitive to spoilers, but for some reason, I just absolutely wanted to know nothing in this case. When he goes to the um, movie lot and sees the old guy played by Bruce Dern, that was the Burt Reynolds role. Burt Reynolds. I think that's pretty obvious to anyone who knew Burt Reynolds had been cast in this. And actually, the point of putting Burt Reynolds in is Cliff is based on 
Burt Reynolds stuntman. Burt Reynolds had a, the same stuntman for 10 years through the 60s and I think possibly 70s, something like that. Uh, that stuntman was Hal Needham, who went on to direct the Cannibal, uh, uh, certainly the Smokey and the Bandit films, Hooper and stuff like that. I think he did Cannibal Run as well. So, yeah, that's just, just an interesting point about it. But in terms of links to other characters in his universe, I didn't really see any. But I've seen it once. And we'll go on to talk about that when we give opening thoughts in a minute, because seeing this film once has given me problems. But we'll come to it. Yeah, anyways, if you haven't guessed by now, we are taking a detour from Robocop uh, and returning to Quentin Tarantino as he returns to bring us his ninth movie, Once Upon a Time, dot, 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 in Hollywood. Mm. No, this is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, starring everybody. Do I have to read out this long list of names? Read a few. Stop when you get bored. <laughs> I'll keep it down to the minimum. No. Yeah, starring Start Brad with Pitt. the most obscurest and then... <laughs> Starring Luke Perry. <laughs> Starring Brad Pitt, Leonardo DiCaprio, Margot Robbie, Margot Collett, Al Pacino, Damien Lewis, Emil Hirsch, Timothy Oliphant. I mispronounced his name, so apologies. Uh, Julia Butters, Dakota Fanning, Mike Moe, Luke Perry, sadly, the late Luke Perry, and Bruce Dern, and Tim Roth, but all okay. scenes were cut, and me, a cameo from Michael Madsen. Answer me a question. Who, who did Luke Perry play? Because I didn't pick it up. Oh, he was... Oh, dear. I have to he, look him up. He was the... Uh, you know, when Leo's having um, the second of the, 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 the scenes for that pilot he's filming? Yeah. And he's got he's got the girl on her lap. The, the guy who walks in and he's... That was Luke Perry? Yeah. That looked nothing like him dressed up like that. In fact, funnily enough, it almost looked a bit like Timothy Oliphant, who played another character in the same yeah. pilot. Um. Lots of references like that, because Timothy Oliphant obviously starred for years in Deadwood. Mm. Yes, yeah, so he's kind of sending up the Western role there, isn't he? So Kind of. You mentioned, well, one thing you did mention just as you went through the cast, you went to Margaret Qualley. Margaret, Margaret <clears throat> Qualley is the woman um, he gives, Brad Pitt gives a ride to out to the ranch. That is the daughter of Andy McDowell. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a lot of sort of movie daughters in that lot so uh, yeah you've got quite a few in there haven't you uh scout um willis is one of them bruce willis's yep. daughter kevin smith's daughter harley quinn smith yep. is in it and there are others that i can't readily recall i have to say there are people in this film i just did not recognize maybe because i'm seeing them out of context i had no idea that was dakota fanning oh yeah, no. yeah. i, 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 I kind of remember her as, as the kind of wide-eyed child star but she's obviously grown up a lot and i mean just because she's dyed her hair and i was like Really? You know, I, I was like, oh, really? Is that? I was like, that looks like to go Fanning. Oh, it is. Yeah. You know, pleasantly surprised. It's um, funny because Elle Fanning now looks more like you expected Dakota to look. Yeah, <laughs> how you would expect it to grow up. But Dakota Fanning now doesn't look like an adult version of the child. Elle Fanning looks like an adult <laughs> version of Dakota. Um, so, yeah. Um, what you also else got, um, you yeah. also got Ethan Hawke and uh, um, Emma, um, uh, Uma Thurman's daughter. Yeah, she's oh, yeah, in she's Stranger Things, well. which I don't watch, but she, she she is the woman who sells the acid cigarette, I think. No, yeah. she, she's the one who bails on on the one. She's the one who like go, oh, well, I've got my knife, and then then just. Are you, are you absolutely, yeah, she's, yeah, she's are you absolutely she? oh, yeah, sure? Oh, yeah, my knife yes. in the car. Yes. Okay. Oh, all right, I won't argue. So they, they, sure. they, she, she looks the spit as well. You look at her, you think, yeah, you can definitely see Uma Thurman. She yeah. basically looks like. 85% Uma Thurman, but there's enough in there that you go, yeah, that's Ethan Hawke's yeah. child. <laughs> um, it's like, you know, Tarantino yeah. opened up his, his little black book and said, right, 
I don't, you know, all you Hollywood stars, send your kids to me. <laughs> I'll make them famous. The other one me. I did not recognise was... Um, I saw Stodgy in Hollywood. I was like, hey, everyone send your kids to me. In Hollywood, I would be that surprised. Jesus like, Christ. Yeah. Everybody and their kid wants to be in this film. Let's yeah. do it. Yeah, a um, few other things to say about it. This is the first Tarantino film that's not under the Weinsteins, for obvious reasons we don't need to go into. So Sony released this. Healthy budget for a Tarantino film, just shy of 100 million. And um, really, that's the kind of all I want to say about that element. Uh, cinematography, again, Robert Richardson, who has uh, just signed up to work on the new Venom film for Andy Serkis. He's mm. going to be director of photography on the Venom sequel. But uh, I've always liked the look of Robert Richardson films. I think they just look terrific. And The Hateful Eight is a, obviously a wonderful example, as is mm. Django. Django Unchained. Um, the Western that Leo works on, the director of that is Sam Wanamaker. Now, Sam Wanamaker, we've covered in a film before because he was in um, Superman 4. He was David Warfield, the guy who sort of took over the... Um, Daily Planet and and in an evil turn wanted to make it profitable. <laughs> what a bastard, eh? But in this film, I, I couldn't spot who was playing him. And again, you come and lock these things up and then you see the name and you realise you remember those people being announced. Sam mm -hmm. Wanamaker in this film is played by Nicholas Hammond. Nicholas Hammond was the eldest of the Von Trapp children in, um, what's the film called? Sound the Sound of Music. I nearly said South Pacific. Uh. Um, <laughs> different film. But he was also TV's Spider-Man in the late 70s. You can get those sort of... They've been re-edited into TV films you can see. So, yeah, he's played Spider-Man in the past. Absolutely unrecognisable under mm. all that makeup. Because outside that. of makeup, he's aged very well. You know, it should, if you saw Nicholas Hammond now not in makeup you would say oh look that's nicholas hammond if you knew who he was but under the makeup no chance no idea and it's quite interesting he, he sort of like he, he, he does a role under all that aesthetic while convincing leonardo DiCaprio's character to do performance under a load of aesthetic like you know i don't want anyone to recognize it recognize it i shit. don't want anyone to recognize you and there he is absolutely unrecognized yeah no that's true um, the only uh, there's a few other things we'll say as we go through um, because they'll occur to me as scenes come up. But um, at one point, Leonardo DiCaprio, I'd, I'd, I'll end up calling them by their character and actor names, sort of interchangeably. <laughs> you kind of I, mix them up. <laughs> I mean, their, their characters did actually make an impression on me. So it's not like Tom Cruise syndrome where they're Tom Cruise unless they're Ethan Hunt. Um, <laughs> I do, you know, think of them by characters, but as we're reviewing and the film's still settling in my mind, I'll, I'll use them interchangeably. But he goes off to Italy to do some spaghetti westerns. He goes over to do one and ends up doing like another three while he's there. Well, the first one is called Nebraska Jim, a made up film, but it's by Sergio Cobucci, who was a very real director. And he actually made the 1966 film Django. The lead of which made a cameo in Django Unchained, which yeah, there's was a lot of um, interesting areas there as well between between well, Tarantino's films and other I, films of the late sixties. I, I, I think the last 70s. thing I I think the last thing I sort of want to say on sort of the thoughts around that sort of thing is that had I realised now I should know that there'll be a lot of references and so on in, in a Tarantino film, but it, had I realised it was this densely layered in that I was spotting loads and I was aware. I was only spotting a fraction, even at the, that high number. Um, 
I'd have done a lot more work. Now, you don't need to, you shouldn't need to do that level of work to, to go and see a film. And in fact, you don't really. But there's just so much in this. There's just so much where you just think, oh, that film was that person and they were in that. And there's a link to this. Um, Especially in terms of the music as well. Because like, this is the radio, even they use like the same radio station, obviously for that local you know, area of LA. Yeah. And I just think that that in itself is, you know, if you were, if you really want to do a deep dive into this, that would just that would probably take weeks on its own. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, the the only thing I mean, I thought it was done, but that's actually reminded me of of another thing. Uh, Paul Revere is one of yes. the tracks. I think I've stuck it on the, um, I think I've stuck it on the the tra- teaser for this show. I can't remember now. Paul Revere and the Raiders. The lead singer of that band lived in uh, that house before. Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski. And we'll get on to why, because the film doesn't really cover why the Manson sent his devotees to that home. But I am aware of why that was. And it was actually, well, I will say it now. He says, go and kill whoever, go and kill whoever's in that house. He thought he was, uh, he had a sort of deal with the guy living there for a record deal, effectively. And then when that didn't come, he sort of, held a grudge and by the time he sort of went to kill whoever was there they'd moved out and it was just kill whoever's there yeah i did think that was kind of like an empty not an empty threat but kind of like it was not very specific is rather than you know this ex person or just whoever lives there and i was like okay <laughs> but yeah. no i didn't know that that's interesting fun fact because he did uh stalk that place didn't he he did um he kind yeah, of almost... do a recce but it was to do with, and again, I, I probably need to sort of uh, look that up a little bit more because I did read some of it um, earlier on. But yeah, the gist was he was a sort of aspiring musician, um, and the tape, the you know, the tape murders were all born out of that house that Melcher used to live in. Terry Melcher being a record producer, but he lived there. He lived there along with Mark Lindsay, Mark Lindsay's then girlfriend, who was the actress Candice Bergen. Um, and when when Manson was snubbed, that's that was the the, the seed of all of it. Occupants of ten o five o Cielo Drive. So all of it really was sparked just by because he wanted a bit of revenge, basically. Yes, effectively. I mean that particular murder. There were others, but mm-hmm. yes. Um, but yeah, the murders obviously that night. Um, difficult topic. I know at the outset this film was thought to be a bit tasteless because of what I think people thought we were going to see. And, of course, what we think we're going to see is not what we end up seeing. Thinking glorious bastards. You know, hopefully yeah. anyone listening to this has seen it, but that rewriting of history to suit the fact that there are now added fictional characters who are able to to sort of redirect history. Um, a very early rumour made this film sound like it was going to be effectively Kill Bill, in that um, there was talk that, Sharon Tate would survive and then go on like a killing spree of her own and of course no- nothing we got was anything like that tasteless no but then you probably hear sort of like things like I reckon Tarantino is one of those writers he's like he gets an idea writes it then changes his mind and it just like his scripts tend to just develop and evolve into from one thing to another yeah and I think that development process is kind of written all over this yeah. because the film yeah, we'll go. We'll go into that. So, Chris, you've seen this a couple of times, now, haven't you? Yeah, first time it really dragged uh, straight off the bat. Um, yeah, I was. I, it was a very disappointing first view. Uh, 
of Sakatel, it was really nice, nice look out, really well performed. Uh, watched it with the absolute, just like really wanting to like and enjoy it, but nothing was clicking. It was just dragging. I was wait, still waiting for the, for the story to kick in. I was like, like wh- when will we get to the get to any sort of point to any, to any of this? It's just like uh, you know, the film is basically just a you know a bunch of characters doing stuff. Um, so when by the time it finished, it was like, okay on second review on second viewing. You know, you, you kind of accept what it is. It's like it's, it's you know it's more a lot more of a. It isn't really a plot driven film at all. It's just a really about. It's you know it is basically just a character study. It's like you know character has written some characters and I'm just gonna have some stuff and I'm, I'm just sort of kind of like. I think he's sort of just. You know, having a bit of nostalgia for old school Hollywood, and just having a bit of oh, I've got a, I've got a funny idea, or there's a fun idea, um, and maybe there's probably something about the uh, something significant about the uh, the Manson murders that that he maybe wanted to sort of like redirect that. Maybe he sort of maybe you know, I mean, I don't know enough about the Charlie Manson and and, and what happened. But I I get the impression well, I was gonna lay out on a guess that maybe he's going for like a you know this the death of old school Hollywood and this is him kind of attempting or at least saying no I want to I want this to continue on in in my in my world like you know the the, the old school you know old school Hollywood leading man type you know uh, because you got the you got essentially led by two characters. Two characters who are played by so is one of the few proper leading men in Hollywood. Uh, Caprio and Pitt, you could easily plonk them in in this era, and they'd fit right in. They fit right in with Steve McQueen and. and I do like. believe they'd be. I do believe they'd be stars in any era. Yeah, I think the sixties was a little bit more alpha male than it is now. So if yeah. I had to hazard a guess, Pitt would do better of the two of them. Yeah, but but even like. Um, Caprio, you know, he, he has that sort of bait, like, sort of, I want to say baby face, he hasn't quite got a baby face, but he's got that kind of very fresh face kind of look about him, so he's, you know, I think he's got more of a heartthrob, uh, whereas, yeah, Pitt would probably be more of a, a man's man, um, uh, and, you know. I, I, could, I could see, I'm not likening him to Steve McQueen, no. but it, it, it would, he would exist in the same world. Yes. Um, I think. And and I think uh... was when you look at something, when you look at someone like Clooney, mm. I put him back further. I put him back more in sort of Cary Grant's era. Yeah, you know what I mean. A so... bit more smoother, a bit more. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, I don't think Pitt's ever looked cooler or been cooler than in this film. I think this film is just absolutely soars on its two leads. The funny thing is, when when Leonardo DiCaprio Leonardo DiCaprio reached stardom at a younger age than Brad Pitt did, so them coming to public attention wasn't as far apart as the gap in their ages, if you like. Yeah. Um, but certainly, he was a few years afterwards. And I remember when I first saw him as a very young man, that sort of teen idol that that he was when DiCaprio first came along. Mm. I remember thinking he, he reminds me of like, he's like the next generation's Brad Pitt. Yeah. So I think there's always been a similarity. It's lessened as they've got older, 
but um, certainly when they first came along, that sort of baby face and slightly floppy hair, they reminded me of each other a little bit. Um, but the film just soars on the two of them, really. Yeah. Um, you know, you, they are good characters to spend time with. Uh, so I'm definitely on second viewing, it definitely improved. Um, what what's I've got, well, once you like know exactly what's what the film is, you kind of have a better grip of it. Um, but my main issue generally, generally is, um, I, I mean, it could be answered in a, in a year or so's time after after dwelling on it or, or further viewings, is I've no idea really what Tarantino is actually saying. I mean, I, I've I've given like a, a idea, but honestly, I I don't know. <laughs> you know, I was like, I, I don't I don't know what the the, the point point of um of some things are you know i don't you know what, what if we spend any time with these old school kind of leading men why bring charlie man charles charles manson um stuff into it especially when it's or you know or why not have it set on that on that one day leading up to that night why do you have to go from and six months earlier you know it just that those kind of things just make me think why you've done that um but anyway um, I'll let someone else talk about what they think. <laughs> yeah, Becca, go on. Yeah, um, it's quite as a busy film. There's a lot going on. Um, I kind of agree with you, Chris, a little bit in that I I kind of see you know with everything else going on in the film, um, and then you kind of got the sort of Manson business going on in the background. Um, they kind of it's just there kind of you know to kind of flavour the film, I guess. Um, but. We've got everything else going on as well. I'd be happy enough just to find out about the two leads, you know, just set against the background of 1969 Hollywood without all that as well going on. Um, but obviously, you know, you're going to include Sharon Tate, so therefore you have to, um, you have to include that obviously because that's what you know, that's kind of really what she's famous for, as well as being married to Roman Polanski. Um, yeah, no, I, I only saw this film once. Um, I'm still a bit undecided, to be honest. Um, as one thing I, I on um, emerging from the cinema, I kind of thought, okay, this is probably like peak Tarantino in terms of um, his obsession with Hollywood, all things, you know, 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s Hollywood. Um, his feet obsession, oh my God, this is probably the most time we've seen feet in a film. Dirty feet um, as well. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, grubby, they all need a wash. Even Sharon Tate, of all people, we think they're yeah. all they're all hippies. They're all hippies, but it's fine. We'll let them off. It's all right. It was the sixties. It was a different time. It's all good. Um, and you know, other people in the in the, in the cinema didn't seem to uh, didn't seem to mind her sat there with her feet, you know, hanging out. So she obviously didn't stink out the place, so it was all good. Um, but yeah, it's, it's like you know, I kind of agree with you, David, as well. This is a very dense film. There's lots of references to you know the real minutiae, kind of like even down to like the casting and and the radio that's playing in the background. I mean, it's only the one radio station. Um, I'm just going to scroll down because I can't remember what it is. K, oh, was it KHJ93? That was it. Yeah, I found the radio stuff actually quite is is a good uh, anchor for the film because it adds. Yeah, definitely. Te- I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Adds... Has he ever had more music in one of his films? It's constant. Yeah, no, it's pretty much yeah. I was, I was just because they're in cars a lot. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of driving in this film. You get to see like the beauty of, of old Hollywood as well, and even even a city like that is constantly changing. It's like um, like Las Vegas, for example. I mean, that's constantly changing. Like when I visited at least a decade ago, it look, now looks different, and, and the same with LA as well. It's just always changing all the time. Um, 
when uh, you know there's there's still kind of references of like Hollywood sign and like the, you know Fox Cinema the studios um and sort of the classic locations that we visit throughout the film obviously they're they're still there but like the landscape has sort of changed and transformed and and become more built up as well um they're kind of getting more and more into the um the, the hills are kind of you know getting more and more built into and it's i think it's just it's quite sad really but yeah it's a real love letter um to you know the old uh, milking out the last days of of um of the hollywood golden era um going into but you know i was sort of reading dave's tweets dave's tweets earlier um you know, and you said it was very much kind of like if you know, I'm saying sort of goodbye to the medium. It's like we're sort of chatting off, off air, and I said, well, if you know, if suddenly Tarantino announced his retirement tomorrow, um, then I that would be perfectly happy to have that as a swan song, as is you know, goodbye to Hollywood. Um, as to where I'd rank it in terms of, um, in terms of his films, I know a lot of reviews generally have been mixed. Some of them are saying, oh yes, it's the best Holly best Tarantino ever, and some have said. Uh, worst Tarantino ever definitely for me I kind of put it somewhere in the middle at the moment I'm still working still percolating it's, it's very enjoyable obviously the massive gory violence at the end involving a dog I found quite upsetting but <laughs> what are you gonna do the dog survived so it it's fine and plus the ending is different it's you know as after all the title the title is once upon a time in Hollywood so you know spoiler alert it, there's a happy ending um it's an alternate ending not that kind of happy ending, folks. But no, it's not, probably not a happy ending. They, they survive. <laughs> a happy ending with a dog. Yes, the, the dog survives. And there's horrible, you know, horrible injuries and things like that. But, you know, Sharon Tate survives in this, in this, in the world of the film um, so far. Um, yeah, it may, it may not be a happy ending, but, you know, it's, it's an alternate ending, definitely. And the kind well, of use of locations are quite good as well. Also, they visit the Playboy Mansion. Um and I was like, oh, I was just gobsmacked, quite frankly. I was like, the Playboy Mansion, oh my life. Um, and yeah, just kind of, as I say, as again, um, I said in previous reviews, like Hollywood, obviously, this will sound really silly, but is as a character in the film as well. And it's kind of basically shown off in all its you know, late 60s hippie glory. Speaking of hippie glory, did you spot um, like Roman Polanski dressed up as Austin Powers? Yes, I did. Oh, I did come out of the house. <laughs> well, it was like the David Brent version. Of <laughs> yeah. I don't know, though. I kind of got more of a like that frilly shirt, and obviously thinking of um, George Lazenby in, in Majesties. Yeah. I kind of got that that vibe as well because I think that's kind of where he got the idea from. That did make um, me smile when he did a film with Telly Savalas through the summer of 1969. I was thinking Telly <laughs> Savalas was busy elsewhere, folks. Yeah, hold on a minute. He was doing two films. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, yeah, it's quite funny because we, um, off, off, aside from this project, there's um, there's a group of us who kind of watch like Jerry Anderson productions via um, a watch party. I think we watched an episode of Captain Scarlet randomly where like there's an end scene where like they're all together having a drink um celebrating the end of a mission and like scarlet's wearing exactly the same thing like this really yeah. blue velvet jacket and a, and a roughly shirt it's just like what i was also i think it was like 68 67 and there's somewhere i'm not quite sure um but it's you know only a few years away and i was just like i can see where they got the idea from literally wears the same outfit it's funny there there is um I just, like I say, of all the films we've ever covered of Quentin Tarantino, I think with the possible exception of his last one, The Hateful Eight, I think I would have been happy to talk about any of them the day after seeing it. 
I, I knew what I thought. Now, I do know what I think here, it, but it's taken... I was a bit worried during it. I was watching it thinking, I've got to talk about this tomorrow night. Christ. Um, I think it's... And, and just like I say, the sheer density of it, not, not so much the story, but just I'm, I'm still spotting people. We just talked about the, the woman who sold the acid cigarette. It's actually Perla Haney Jardine, who was Bibi, the bride's daughter in Kill Bill 2. Um, I've noticed Marvin, the character of Al Pacino, his wife is played by Brenda Vaccaro, who uh, was the sort of villain sidekick in Supergirl. I'm not picking her best film there, but that's the the one that first came to <laughs> you mind. Really, you've got the you connection there, haven't you? You don't really see her anyway, do you? you sort of not see... really, no, but she's in there. And I noticed one of the lawmen on Bounty Law is Martin Cove, John Kreese from the Karate Kid series. Oh, well, there so, we are. well it's all that kind of like 60s, 70s, all, the, all those kind of people. As, as I say, you know, he's literally opened up his, his black book and said, right, he's just gone who can I call on? He could ever want. And that's another thing that adds to the feeling. It's so rich. It's like, it? like, like it's a sign off. Like my one last chance to cast all these people I would love to work with and put in there. Yes, yeah, Dreamcast. Friends, right. daughters, but you know, Kurt Russell's back. Zoe Bell's got a scene. Yeah, Zoe Bell's uh, returned. Emile Hirsch, who yes. you know was big. Scoot McNary is in this. Um, it's like he's got his wish list, hasn't he? So right, okay, there's a long list of people I really want to work with. Let's do it. Cameos from Pack James Remar. Remar, we saw. In, yeah, I spotted um, him. Django Unchained. I couldn't play. He's, he's always brilliant in whatever he does. I, I just, really think he's terrific. It's yeah. a shame that he was uncredited, but it's fantastic. Uh, and we could go on, and then references to these films, you go and look them up, and they're relevant because they have links to something else we've either seen, like Django or, or something else Tarantino's done. Even uh, like Tim Roth and Michael Madsen, you know, people that he's worked with before. Yeah, and I didn't mind Michael Madsen. I don't mind Michael Madsen cameoing in like what could be a career sign off, or if it's not a career sign off. It was, it's nice to see him after everything he's been through recently. So it was, it was nice to see him. What's he been through? A lot of like drink and things like that. So. Well, yeah. I think, think, we, think, think we could tell that. I mean, the, the funny thing about the Michael Madsen thing is, like, I, I kind of, watching his little cameo here, I can kind of see what about him peels as Tarantino. And that he reminds him of those old school black and white actors used to seeing those cowboy films. And you think, you yeah, probably fit in really well there. You, he you doesn't know. sound unlike um, Clint Eastwood. Yeah. In his little cameo as well. I, I totally agree with that, Chris. I don't think... I've never really enjoyed him, Mr. Blonde aside, in any Tarantino films. And I've not seen him in much else that I've enjoyed either. But that is not Sorry, to not say... Sorry, not as um, Agent Falco in another <clears throat> day. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have a place somewhere. And I think you're absolutely right. This is probably it. Um, but yeah, uh, and you do see an awful lot of... Um, you see an awful lot of like other... Uh, even actresses that they have put in the film, like the one who ends up as Leo's wife completely influenced by Claudia Cardinale and things like that. And it's just, I, I could go on. And the fact is, I could go on, but I almost couldn't go on in that, like, the vast majority of the references I've not even seen yet. So it's a film that I really wish I could have lived with for a lot longer. Um, but it is what it is. And I'm, I'm ready to talk about it. And I, I think what what really impressed me about the film was... I mean, tonally, it's the first 45 minutes of Jackie Brown, really. You know how in Jackie Brown, I think I probably said this in review, if I didn't, then I could have, um, that I wasn't, I was in no hurry for that plot to start, really. 
I mean, it did start because we saw her getting arrested and everything else. But that time we spent hanging out with Hord Ordell and then her and the Max Cherry character and so on. I was in no hurry for that to end. Uh, you know, we normally judge films on on every scene, you know, developing the plot on further. And it, it just doesn't apply here because there's so much character work. So I was really enjoying it. The other thing is it made me want to go and see Hollywood. And when you look at it, I come from a country, we all come from a country that's just steeped in history. We've got so many historic buildings and environments here that, you know, this, this town that was thrown up decades ago, not centuries ago, a lot of it isn't actually that impressive architecturally, but just something about it switching to night and all of the lights coming on and all of that sort of thing. Just his love for it is just absolutely there. I think just as as opening thoughts, I just want to say that during the film, I was, yeah, I was a bit confused. Where's this going? And I think I just calmed down after about an hour and just said, let it, let it go. Just let it happen. Let it, let it do what it, it does. And I'm watching two actors at the top of their game, um, absolutely commanding the screen. And then references to, to Tarantino's filmic past in terms of his influence and what he grew up loving, just permeating all of it. And, you could study this film for years. You could go off and watch all of the films that influenced this. You could watch all of the things that are referenced. You start reading up and find uh, to find out, okay, how did Steve McQueen's path cross with Sharon Tate's? Well, she once uh, uh, auditioned on a, one of his films and things like that. And you could just read up on this forever. And you think, is that a real character? Yes, he is. What did he do? Right, he did this. Um, so do you think that's... Just, so you think that's what Tarantino's vision of this film is? It's just like making, I'm just going to make this big, massive Easter egg of a film where you just have like lots of little sort of built-in universe type type things that people can kind of like go back to, rewatch, try and figure out, go back and, you know, do you know what I mean? Is it, do you reckon that was his main concept for the film? Was to kind I, of... wonder, I wonder if the year came first to him or the Tate murder came to him first. Because it, it feels to me all the way through that he just wanted to show. Now, he was born in 63. So he will start and he grew up around the, this part of the world. So I, I'm wondering if his sort of earliest memories of TV are watching things like FBI and so on and stuff like that. And various Western shows, because there were loads of them in, in around that era. Obviously not Bounty Law that's made up for the film, but... There were, you know, pilot season and, and just seeing things that come and go and with the actors you know from something else. And I do wonder if he wanted to show us the formative parts of his life that he then went back and started studying in depth. We know he loves spaghetti westerns. I mean, he loves a lot of things, but I mean, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly is amongst his favourite films. And he's obviously very fond of Django and some of the other work and countless others we won't have seen because his film knowledge comfortably trumps ours. Um, but it's a, it's an homage to the era, but it's also an homage to the time frame of his own career, because what else is sticking the likes of Timothy Oliphant in this? That that tells mm -hmm. me he probably watched Deadwood, you know, and things yeah. like that. So, um, you know, even people like Re Rebecca Gayhart, um, who played um, Cliff Booth's wife in this, in a very small scene, I know her from Nip Tuck. She was in Nip Tuck as like this blind character. Oh my god, uh, she was in that show for ages. 
Yeah. Um, well, I, I, mean, I, got, I got sick of it quite quickly, but when it started, it seemed quite good. But after, after a season, it was really soapy and a bit shit. Mm, yeah, it did kind of go down the pan a bit. What do, what, what do we think of that scene, by the way? I mean, it is kind of like a very, like, you know, adding the, 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 the thing with, like, um, the type of content that Cliff Booth, like, killed his wife. Now, we don't, it doesn't reveal that he did or not, but I think that was meant to be inspired yeah, it's left by angling, isn't it? Uh, Robert Ragnar's wife, isn't it? But I don't know whether that's just a little reference to that more than anything. I don't know. Yeah, um, for those who don't know what that means, look up Natalie Wood. I was going to say, uh, yeah, is that a reference to it was Natalie a decade, Wood it was a, mystery? It was a decade after this film. But Robert Wagner was married to her at the time and she, she drowned. And there were there, there's a lot of rumour around that um, that I won't really address because it actually slurs Robert Wagner. And I don't know enough to know if there's anything in that. But obviously that... Natalie Wood's sister, of course. Diamonds are forever's. What's she called? Plenty uh, of tool. Yeah. I can't remember her first I name. Say Lana. Lana. Lana Wood. Yeah, Lana Wood <laughs> was her sister. Right. Plenty of tool. And um, but yeah, so I'm I'm looking at a uh, love letter to where he's from, a love letter to this era of inter- the entertainment industry, film and TV. Well, he would have grown up with TV, and probably film would have come Radio later as well. And then he is sort of, yes, uh, and radio, because we know music of a certain era is important to him. And also um, seeding the film with so many of the people he's probably admired and wanted to work with. And much like he put um, Robert Forster in Jackie Brown, not Gene Hackman, his list is not always the same as a studio's list of who should be in these things. Mm. So, again, George Spahn, the 80-year-old blind guy, was going to be um, the guy who died, Burt Reynolds. That would be interesting. It was going to be Burt Reynolds, but I don't know if I said this on air or just before we were recording, but obviously the, that was based on Hal Needham, uh, who was Burt Reynolds' stuntman. But, um, and Luke Perry. So there's all of this cornucopia of different little influences from things he's enjoyed, people he's worked with, people he's brought back. Let's see what BB's doing now. Do you know what I mean? Um, people's daughters, actors he hasn't got to work with yet, actors he has worked with yet, and people that I think have been in things he admired. Mm. And also that third tier of, of sort of actor like uh, Francesca Capucci, uh, sort of Rick's wife towards the end of the film, who just remind him of that golden era of Hollywood with people like Sophia Loren, Cordia Cardinale and others. So it's really layered. I, I just I was just so happy once I stopped chasing the plot and let it come to me. I was just so happy to be in this environment. Take all the references out and put it in modern day and another city. Well, it wouldn't be because obviously it's based around the entertainment industry. But just put it almost take all of those layers out. And I'd be saying, well, where is it? Where's the film? Where Where is what we're here for? But it's just such a, it feels like a, it does feel like a career capper. It just feels like and this was me. It's nice to see him back in the 20th century and not just the 20th century, but. I was about to say modern day, but it isn't. It's 50 years ago. But of course, the only 20th century we've had from him since the mid 2000s is Inglorious Bastards, which was a war film and not America. So to see him in somewhat contemporary um, America and, and to be honest, things like things like Reservoir Dogs could almost mm. have been set any time that could easily have been set in the 70s, as opposed to it just being a 70s radio station. 
Um, and I think the same is true with Pulp Fiction to a lot mm. of ways. Those films are a timeless second half of the 20th century as opposed to 94, 92 or whatever. And even the way the characters dress is, is somewhat timeless. So I feel like this is this is almost the greatest hits Tarantino film. But I don't mean that as the same insult as when you've heard me use that on other films. I, I think it's not always an insult, actually. Normally, when I use terms like greatest hits, I'm talking about a studio bringing back a product after a break or trying to reassure the audience. Like and, safety first. Kind of. Safety first, exactly. It's not always an insult. You know, things like GoldenEye and Force Awakens are not bad films, but in my view. But um, I have slight problems with them both. Um, and actually probably more with the more lauded of the two of those but um it does feel like this career kappa where he just says well this is what i was this mm. is what i achieved this is who i worked with these were my influences this is what my stuff looked like if i have one complaint on first viewing other than pacing and plot which we'll talk about as we go through it because he does miss sally Menke, there is no doubt i don't remember much in the way of quotable dialogue you may prove me wrong as we go through it or as I remember certain scenes, but I didn't come out with anything in my head in quite the same way as some of his previous films. Like Pulp Fiction or something. Mm. Yeah, I guess it'll take a while. I mean, it is quite it's quite verbose as well. It's got to settle, hasn't it? And there's so much dialogue in this. The script must have been massive. Mm. Um, this is not, you know, strong and stoic. This are, these are people who talk and talk a lot. Yeah. There's a lot of, you know, even when they drive, you know, he's got scenes just of Brad Pitt driving around in the car, you know, you've got the radio backward, you know, radio going on in the background. Um, so you kind of, there's a lot of, um, even kind of like diegetic, non diegetic music. Yeah. There's a lot going on all the time. So it's just one of those ones to kind of, as you say, they've just let, let it wash over you. I think but, the last yeah. thing I want to Soak say, up the atmosphere. The yeah. The last thing I want to say, and this has been all over the place, this sort of introduction, I know, because things just keep occurring to me because the <laughs> it's is so new. Um, and it's it's going to hurt us a little bit tonight on this review, not to the point that we'll regret doing it. I think there, there's something for these immediate reactions, but this is a film that needs to settle. Um, I think that's true of a lot of films where there's an ongoing series where we've seen a lot of them a lot of times, but this film more than most, because obviously the same will be true with Bond next year, but at the same time, it's not going to be laden with references to 150 other films you really ought to have seen and never got round yeah. to. So you don't have to watch all of these films, but obviously just even even an afternoon on Wikipedia would help you with this stuff. But I think the last thing I want to say is this might be for all of the irony I find in this film in that it is not what we would have expected is that because of all the talk at the outset of what a poor taste project this was, no trust for Tarantino at all and, and only imagining him as most bloody and most violent at all times you know um is that this is probably his best his most good-natured film there's relatively little violence in it and the characters are kind they are not yes there is some doubt over cliff's past but he's actually quite a nice fella in this film he's quite amiable he does everything rick needs of him and he does it with a good heart he doesn't drive off in a shit mood and then slags everyone else off because his boss is being an asshole to him he's pretty kind to everybody um, Rick, is, his career is going downhill at points in this film, but he responds to it internally with a bit of a tick and a little bit of nerves and a bit of sort of self-flagellation. He doesn't take it out on assistance or anyone around him. So when you compare it to other Tarantino films with the protagonists where they're 
good and bad all in the same package and you know they might be criminals but there's honor amongst thieves or they might be good guys but they also do heinous things this film is actually really really good natured and not wildly violent until the last sort of 10 minutes or so and i just want i just thought that was interesting for a product that more than any other people feared something very poor taste he's sort of known for his violence as well isn't he like can this film Obviously, the title card comes up with the um, the BBFC rating, like 18. And I was, oh yeah, like, gory violence. I was like, oh, God, like three quarters of the way through. I was like, where's the gory violence? You know, like, once only, we got to the... It's only of it. But yeah, I know it's just a little bit, but it is quite gory. Um, and yeah, we kind of got to the um, the old movie ranch. Um, and um, I was kind of thinking, oh, well, this is where, this is where the goriness is going to happen. And no, it was literally right the last half hour even and I was like oh come on you know and sort of thinking oh this can't be a Tarantino movie without a shoot up or the, you know. the end um the end fight scene it's more violent because it ends in deaths but it reminds me of when she goes to see Vanity Green at the start of Kill yeah Bill. there's a sense of it's very dread. it's very knockabout it's a bit more hard-hitting than that but it's a little bit knockabout it's kind of shot quite of light and funny as well it's it's very Tarantino um, yeah. I've always his films are violent. I, I I can't sit here and say well they're not. I mean that would be the worst argument I'd ever try to make about anything. <clears throat> but I also think that it's something that's very overstressed in what the appeal of the guy is or what his predilections and interests are. And I've, I've even got a friend on Facebook who wasn't addressing me, but he, he's he's a really nice man. But he was he's one of these that kind of seems to insult anyone who likes something he doesn't. And he, he doesn't do it a lot, but he does it with Tarantino. Well, his kids are for fucking teenagers. And I'm thinking, well, if you think the average teenager wants to sit through two hours and 30 minutes of like low key talking ending in a brief violent scene, then I think you may have misunderstood what the average sort of Fast and Furious franchise sort of follower is, for example. So I, I think I, I think of him as a, a slice of Americana, a slice of um, a, a big slice of nostalgia and really fairly well-defined um, characters, albeit sometimes within the bodies of archetypes, which I've always found really interesting. And really strong dialogue scenes that run as long as he feels they need to run as he's writing them. And he often says the script almost tells me, the characters tell me what where they need to go. And I always feel that. I don't think I don't think violence is remotely as dominant in what makes Tarantino Tarantino as is often painted. Mm. Yeah, I will, I will say that it does, nothing feels that contrived. About about it. I mean, you know, we talk about. I mean, it's quite easy because there isn't. Well, there isn't really a plot, so to speak. But it there's just like, oh, I've set up uh, a few things here and there, and it 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 does allow its characters just to be their characters, and they'll act them and behave in the way that they would. Um, it's like one of the things with the dialogue. I mean, I I picked it up straight away. I was like thinking, where's the where's the like snappy dialogue? You know, and I think that was another thing I was making it drag. I was like, this is, doesn't seem like Tarantino. But then again, thinking about that now, you know, what's one of like the criticisms? Like every character sounds like Quentin Tarantino. Well, here yeah. he's like, it, it, here he's not even going off like another book, like Jackie Brown. He's actually made, he's actually developed characters that that don't sound like him. And, they, I, they, and I suppose it, that's it a good thing. Like his, it still sounds like his stuff. 
Yeah. But it's not as quotable because I, I, I think in some cases, I thought it death proof a couple times through this because the absolute worst example in all Tarantino for me is when they're all sat in, I think it's a cafe, talking about cars and vanishing point. And they all sound like him and they're all coming out with dialogue that just wouldn't come out of these people. Not because they're women and it's cars. I'm not making a sexist point there at all. But there's nothing about these characters with the exception of Zoe Bell, who's not the best deliverer of dialogue anyway, that I think it sounds anything like Tarant- uh, anything other than Tarantino just presenting his own predilections and interests because he obviously likes Vanishing Point, which I quite like too, by the way. It's a pretty good film. But... Um, Although the, the lead man in it's a bit weird. But anyway, um, Vanishing Point is a pretty good film. But I don't believe those people would have seen Vanishing Point. I don't believe anyone other than, obviously, Zoe Bell's character, who is a stunt woman, would be that into it. And it sounds like Quentin Tarantino. So many times in this film, I felt that it sounded like it was written by Quentin Tarantino, which isn't the same thing. The characters all have their own voices, and that, that really impressed me. So I think in some respects... I'm going to come down. I'm not going to come down the middle. I'm on the very positive. Halfway through, it was a three star film. When I walked out, it was a four star film. Living, sitting on it for a day, it's now one of my favorite films of the year. But that doesn't negate some of the criticisms we're going to have. This man still needs an editor. There is absolutely no doubt that I. I the line was drawn after Inglorious Bastards. That was a long film that didn't waste a frame. And the three since have certainly been baggier and had whole sections where you go, we didn't need that bit. I sort of enjoyed them, but we didn't need that bit. Um, I don't know what you cut from this, because so much of it is character work. You go, well, why would you lose that scene? It's it's not like there's a 100-minute taut action thriller in this. There isn't. So I think you might as well go in and let it run as long as you like. But there's no doubt it's, it's somewhat unfocused. But yeah, I absolutely loved it. There's no doubt. And I, I will see it again in a couple of weeks, and I will do a lot more reading around it. Mm. Yeah, it's probably a film you explore, isn't it, really? Well, I've got to go and see Gerard Butler as the world's worst action star next week. So. <laughs> oh, God. Shut up, Butwood. Well, he, he's, he's not right, that bad. He's fine, but it's a bit like... I said to someone last night when we were watching it, because we were going to go and see it next week, Angel has fallen. Oh. And I said to him, it's a bit like when you watch Taken films, right? And uh, They always used to try and put a bit of like his family life in. And he was called Brian and you'd see him have like a barbecue with his friends and then his daughter having a driving test and shit. And you'd always go, I don't believe any of this because they don't they're not committed to any of this. They just feel they've got to pad it out with some of this shit. And I feel like that about Gerard Butler films. The Mike Bannon character, I couldn't give a fuck. He had a baby in the last one, so what? It's <laughs> like, just just like fucking storm wherever he is and have him fight him off for fucking 90 minutes and then we can all go home saying, wasn't the dialogue shit, but he ain't bad. But that's Gerard Butler. I mean, he, the first film I ever saw him in was the original um, series of Tomb Raider films. He was in the sequel to that. And it's terrible. It's a really bad film. But I remember watching him and thinking, you're pretty good. And actually, you wouldn't make a bad James Bond. He's too old now. Um, <laughs> like Daniel Craig appearing in the in, uh, um, Team uh, although, although he's already been in a Bond film, technically, Tomorrow Never Dies. <laughs> but I remember watching He is in Tomorrow thinking, Never Dies, don't you know? Yeah. And since then, he's made nothing but like really quite poor choices in my view. But um, yeah, no, I need to see that next week. But certainly the weekend after, this will still be out. I'll go and see it again. And I think this will only rise up my list. I'll talk about where I've got it preliminarily, if you like, at the end. But, yeah, I'm, I'm probably the happiest with, of the three of us with it. But that doesn't mean I didn't have moments during it where I wasn't thinking, where's this going? I'm not sure about this. 
Yeah. And there are still scenes in it. I don't know what it's there for. I mean, you've you've put Damian Lewis in as Steve McQueen. I don't know that you need that scene at all, but there you go. Yeah, other than the fact that he kind of vaguely looks a bit like Steve McQueen. And, he uh, looks... Well, when they said they'd cast him, I thought, no, I can't see it. And then he actually inhabits it really well. Yeah. And, and it would have been distracting to have Daniel Craig there, who's obviously Hollywood's best fucking modern equivalent in terms of look. But then you've got, like, you know, the scene with, like, Caprio, where he's like, oh, I was in um, uh, The Great Escape. He was, like, he like kind of, like, auditioned for it or something. And you, mm. and, and you think... Well, so he, he actually filmed some scenes of him in the great thing. Well, why is that there? You know, I think that's his, that's in his imagination. I think. Yeah. I think he either is telling the truth and he didn't audition, he didn't get that far, or he did and it was a bit embarrassing. And the only way he can sort of mentally get round that is to like almost imagine he did do it and it went well. Not, 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 <clears throat> not delusion. Not he thinks he was in it. But like in his mind, it's almost like a little fantasy scenario. What if I was? I think you know. What I thought it was. I thought it was like, and and, and maybe because he paid more attention to the dialogue next time around. But uh, I kind of got the impression that it was, it was kind of remembering back when he filmed a few scenes because what they it was like one of the things where they really want Steve McQueen, but they put pressure they they put pressure on him by casting someone else, and then they they started filming, saying, "Well, if you don't do it, this guy's going to do it." So, so do you think it was Harvey Keitel and Apocalypse Now, but uh, it, he's been hushed up on it? A, a little bit. Well, well things are Harvey Keitel was at, was actually cast, but um, it, it was it wasn't like oh used as a tactic. But I think it was like that as a little bit of a. It's just a little bit sore. You just felt a little bit. Oh, just you know, obviously I was never going to be Steve McQueen kind of thing. You know, <laughs> that would have that would have been like a big big role for him. But um, yeah. All right, folks, we've held off long enough. Shall we discuss this uh, very long film sequentially? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a long We're film. We're going to be here all night. <laughs> well, no, it's a long film, but, like, you know, is there much scenes to really go go to with it? I mean... Um... Yeah, I mean, you you could summarise it pretty quickly, to be yeah. fair. But um, I think we start with a clip from Bounty Law which is the TV yeah. series he was in. Now, originally, at the start of the films, it's not overly clear on time frame. But when the Manson family, if you like, that's just how they were colloquially known, they're not relatives of his. But when the Manson family are discussing him later, and like, was that Rick Dalton? They say that he was in this Western mm-hmm. in the 50s. Yeah. And I don't know if they're mistaken, because I thought I saw a timestamp that was later, but that may have been FBI, I can't remember. They wouldn't look similar, but I might be my mm. memory might be being confused. But he was in a TV film, a series for a number of years. It ran for some time. Bounty Law. We, the actual scene is the interview, isn't it? They're interviewed on yeah. the set of it, and I love the way this is shot because inserts always used to look really obvious. I remember there was a Dudley Moore film. I think it might have been the one where he played a bigamist or something. I think it was Mickey and Maud or something. He was a he was a, an interviewer for like a news station and he would interview somebody, but then literally they would turn the camera around and just film several shots of him reacting. Mm. So he'd remember what he said and you just see him go, yeah, that's interesting. And <laughs> that sort of stuff. Mm. And it yeah, really reactions, just, noddies, as I think they're called in the business. Where they kind of like give like... What are they called? Noddies. Because typically right. like they, they nod their heads like, oh yeah, I'm listening. Yeah. So and a, it always looks really false because yeah. you're, you're not listening and it wasn't shot at the time now. But that film is nothing special. It's not that good a film. It's got um, 
Steven Spielberg's first wife in it, Amy Irving. Um, but it's a film I saw some years ago, and it had some funny. He marries two women at the same time with hilarious consequences. Um, <laughs> right? and, and eventually they it, catch it. It, it sounds very much like that die film, like Run for Your Wife. That was yeah. And then at the end of the film, he's caught out and loses them both. But then they both, on the quiet, get back together with him. So you see him like at the end of the film, sat on a park bench, surrounded by fucking children. He's still married to like two women, but. It's ruined interviews for me ever since. And I saw that as a kid because it's like a 1984 film or something. And it's just ruined it. So obviously every time they cut back to him, you know that wasn't shot at the time. But yeah, they're interviewed and we're just introduced to the main two. It's quite a short interview there. Um, although I think the carrying Rick, Rick's load line, they are having a gig, internal giggle at that, aren't they? Mm. So we were introduced to Cliff being Rick's stuntman, basically. Yeah, uh, yeah, I like the idea how they obviously you know Rick's a star, so like you know he he basically explains Cliff, and Cliff gives pretty much like a like a, just a, a few word answer, and that's yeah. it. So, yeah, yeah, that's about right. <laughs> and what I love is the interviewer went, "Great, join us next week when I'll be on the set of the Dick Van Dyke Show," and you go, "Is that it? <laughs> that's the whole interview." Yeah, is it's that all? all? Come on. And the thing is, he's looking fascinated, the interviewer, all the way through. But it's almost like they cut it short because, like, somebody has said in his ear, like the director, like, we're getting nothing here. Yes, <laughs> come on, wind it up, wind it up. So, lovely opening scene, very, very Tarantino. Um, and then, so where do we go straight from that? We get um, the restaurant with Al Pacino. Yeah, we get the intro where they where they all basically sort of driving, very Tarantino esque. We get yeah. the, the credits. And, um, I couldn't believe that, but, Pacino. I was like, "Wow!" I couldn't. I, I was just. I was amazed. I was really starstruck. Also, I just. I don't know if it's my eyes or, but like the the titles, the opening credits change colour as well from like orange to yellow. I don't quite know why it happens like that, but um, I just kind of noticed there was a colour change. It's another um, thing that it feels looks very, different depending um, on the scene. But I wasn't sure if it was to signify something. So I'm sorry I didn't pick I, up on that one. I thought it was I, interesting. I, I I don't know is the honest answer, but it has reminded me that I did notice that I keep saying this is like a career ending, career finishing, career capping, not career ending, but a career capping sort of film with a greatest hits feel to it. Even the fonts are yeah, little, yeah, we've seen those before. Yeah, well, there's, there's the font from Jackie Brown. There's exactly. definitely the font from Reservoir Dogs. There's there's a bit of like his signature look, but with a load of other bits in it as well from previous films. He mixes and matches a bit. But yeah, they go to the restaurant. It's February 1969. Bear in mind, listeners, the murders happened six months after this, but we'll get to that. He goes to meet Al Pacino, who's basically a producer. Um, and they're talking about his, uh, he watched a double bill with his wife the previous night. And what are these two films called? Oh, uh, Tanner. Tanner? Yeah. It's like a western. Yeah. Um, so he's, he's got some fame from that. But it's an old-style Hollywood western, sort of a Clint Eastwood. Um, yeah. It's not a spaghetti western. It's kind not of the John, John, Wayne. John Wayne era. Yeah. And the other one is a Nazi film, the name of which I've forgotten. Oh, there's the, something like The Five Fingers of um, of Kapowski or something like that. Or... Yeah. And he's basi- he's, he basically goes and, like, immolates a load of Nazis with a flamethrower. <laughs> yeah. Which is just like, that must have been pushing it for the time. But then Quite again, controversial. That, 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 that was like a, like very much like a throwback to Inglourious Bastards, probably a bit of Grindhouse in there. Yeah. That, that kind of thing. Um, um, but he's a TV star, and of course yeah. that was very B-list at the time. So he's not doing, he's not doing the Great Escape. 
just no. to think of the first example to my mind to my mind he is he is probably doing like the the very cheap b movie equivalent which like an early exploitation yeah film. well it's almost like he sort of came out of bank law and, and and did and did a few movies like a quick surge of movies and now he seems to be kind of just be doing more tv but like coming in for like one episode jobs he did he baggy. did he did a david caruso he left a hit show because he thought he was going to be a film star and it didn't mm. happen and now he's like casting round in um trailers but he's normally uh, not trailers pilots uh but he tends to be the bad guy in the pilot yeah so he's and like this is something marvin points out to him he just said your whole image is going to be they're not beating you up they're beating jake cahill up which yeah. is your lead from that film so the audience's view of you is going to be that's what you are yeah you're the guy there to be beaten up or killed and then we also see him in a music video which i quite like <laughs> Or is it an advert? Hullabaloo or something? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I've used it as a gift. 60s music shows. Yeah. We've talked about the pops, but we don't see that so much anymore. The, the days the days used to smoke on set as well. You used to stare with a cigarette, like, bopping away. There's so much smoking in this film. Oh, my God. Oh, God. You and know, then, I, of course. I, I, th- I, the... I think I've got COPD. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry I, just got, I think I've got COPD just by watching it. <laughs> yeah, this yeah. thing. He, jo- he joined the OCP from <laughs> yes. yes. Also, I was all the time looking for um, obviously another trope of Tarantino is red apple. And spoiler alert, we see it right at the very end. But all all the way through, I was trying to look at oh, you know, somebody going to smoke red apple brand cigarettes, somebody going to drink I don't know red apple brand beer or something. And I was just hunting for it throughout the whole advert. film. So. I only stayed for that advert because you told me because the the credits run for quite a while before that kicks in. Yeah, they do. I, I, was like, I would have walked out. Most of my screening walked like out. Like staying right till the end. I stayed. I thought I trust Becca. I stayed, and I'm really glad I did. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And uh, do you know who was a? Uh, that's a uh, cameo by Quentin Tarantino. He he played He's as the director. director. You hear him? Yeah. 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 I kept listening out for his voice because sometimes he does narration and stuff, but it's largely done by Kurt Russell in this film. Yeah, I would have thought. Yeah. I would have thought that was be Quentin. Sorry to cut you off, Becca. No, go ahead. No, that was it. I just thought that. I would have thought that would have been. I would have thought. In my, you know, listen, I think why? Why is it Kurt Russell? Kurt, Kurt Russell is in this film, so why is like that? His you think like well, if it's Kurt Russell, then it'd be his character telling the story. But you, so you think it would be well? Surely, just give it. Quentin's telling a story, yeah. just like. And I don't mind him doing that. It's only ever a couple of minutes. Mind you, it's quite a long piece, mm. so he's better suited to it than Quentin. But there you go. It's all right. So the whole point of this scene is we 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 are constantly seeded with who they are as well, and that's your stunt man, and you look alike, and all that kind of stuff. He's been with me this number of years, yeah. and so on. He's warned about the state of his career, and it's hinted that he, if he goes to Rome, he can work with Sergio Corbucci and mm. do some getting westerns. I think Sergio Corbucci as a name is named later, but at the moment it is. You should go there and do Italian films. Yeah, and Rick immediately sort of goes into this slight state of distress and panic that he's got all the way through the film of my career's finished and he's furious with himself mm. and cliff is just so laid back he's like hey nothing wrong with going to italy <laughs> it's fine why not the one thing i did notice is when cliff drives this is another thing about his sort of loyalty and service he drives perfectly sensibly with rick in the car as soon as rick's not in the car he drives really fast yeah he drives like crazy yeah so he probably he's, wouldn't want to be in a car. <laughs> he's a lot more responsible when the guy's in the car with him. He takes that seriously. Basically, Cliff's career is dependent on, you know, 
risk. It's basically, yeah, it's his job, isn't it? It's his livelihood so on the line. He's, so. he's become a he's become a gopher. He drives around, picks him up, fixes his aerial, as we'll come to later, and that sort of thing. I, all I could think of when he was on the roof was Rod Hull. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and Tony Hares. What's he doing on the roof? <laughs> <laughs> oh. But you know, Brad Pitt still it's got all it clearly. In the ass. Build a few Castrol GTX. <laughs> <laughs> As they get home uh, up in the Hollywood Hills somewhere, uh, well, we know it's Cello Drive, which the film lovingly focuses on the sign. Uh, and again, you'll pick up what that is. We know what that is. But the more you know about this whole world, the better. And Roman Polanski is driving home with his new wife, Sharon Tate. I think they married very mm-hmm. previous year. Margot Roby and Rafael Zverku. I'm not even going to try and pronounce his surname. Unpronounceable Polish name. No. Um. He who does have does not have any speaking role in this film at all. He's just kind of like. No, I think that's quite interesting. He got all the all the big Hollywood names of, of that era. Obviously, before he was embroiled in, in naughtiness and scandal. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, of all the one, he's you know a very famous director as well and, and filmmaker in his own right. He'd already um, done. And yet, he doesn't have a speaking role in this film so so he's already done Ro- rosemary's baby the points are just point out about um margot Roby is she is wearing uh brand contact lenses in this uh, i was gonna say doesn't she have blue eyes in real life she, like, hmm. yeah she's got blue eyes it, it looked yeah. different it looked different it took me a while to clue into what it was i only worked it out it's quite a good likeness well i think i think a little bit let's have a look okay mm. yeah there's similarities I'm trying to pronounce this guy's name i felt i don't know i think the thing about margot Robbie is again she's like uh Pitt and um, Caprio, she does have a timeless movie star quality. I mean, that's one of the things I've always kind of admired her since I saw her in... Um, yeah, she always in... kind of looks very fresh-faced, and yeah, I think I would agree, Chris, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, funny enough, it was in that Will Smith film, Focus, where I thought, no, she's a general movie star. Um, yeah, and... she'd, have been, she'd have been successful at the same time as, like, Audrey Hepburn and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, yeah she would have fit in anywhere. She has a timeless quality to her, and she does have just on-screen charisma. Just, you know, regardless of like how uh, beautiful she, she looks, because you know she's not an unattractive woman, but she does controversial a... view there, Chris. <laughs> well, I know, I know. <laughs> if you'd like to bang Sharon Tate or Margaret, are you nearly going to say Sharon Stone <laughs> or, or Sally Field? That 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 subject is still open. Yeah, all three choices uh, as they are now. <laughs> Sorry, I went dark. <laughs> yeah. Is that another is that inside to your fruity corner, Chris? This is pork minute. Um yeah, so they drop they drop them off at home and then obviously we get we see uh Cliff Drive home, he lives in a trailer basically behind <clears> a drive in <throat> movie theatre. Mm. Uh very like sort of Buck would have lived lived in in Kill Bill Two, that sort of thing. And he's got a dog. Brandy. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 this place needs a good old fucking clean. Quite frankly, it's disgusting. It's quite interesting. You, you got the the comparison between where Leo lives and sorry, where <laughs> his character lives, and obviously, um, living in a in a trailer on a what was it looks kind of like to be a um like an old drive-in. Yes, it is. In fact, it's, it's it's active when he gets home. There are cars in there watching the film. Yeah, showing. Pretty Poison and something else. And even then, the reference, the camera going up and over the top of it is Once Upon a Time in the West. That's a, mm. that's a Sergio Leone shot he's copied there. He does it a couple of times in the film. 
we see it almost in Back to the Future 3 when we first see the western town oh, of yes. Hill Valley. Yeah. So little things like that. Most of them will miss, but some of them stand out a mile. And Once Upon a Time in the West is one of my favourite films. So that stands out. But yeah, he, live, he lives. his house is kind of filthy, isn't it? Although he's got this dog well trained, doesn't he? Yeah, they establish that because it, obviously it, it's an important point as we get to the end of the film that yeah. um, he, 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 he is very much... Um, uh, in, in, you know, he's very good like, at sort of training at like, online command. So he has that kind of... That relationship with, with with his dog, and we'll see even later to, on as well exactly how well trained. Well, even to the point that he's taught the dog not to whine. He's literally yeah. going to chuck his food away if he whimpers again, and things like that. Um, that's the thing I think we'll get on subsequent viewings that we think we're watching a load of like noodling scenes that are interesting. No, it'll mean something. But we've already had the the flame flower dropped, and we've mm. already had the the dog's training dropped. Um, we've already had from um his driving the 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 level of care he takes when rick's there he loves rick not romantically we don't think but he loves Rick. <laughs> so um and he's very loyal so that's the one thing that you know was he a murderer we don't know he, he is painted as a war hero he has killed people but that was in combat in terms of the uh, death of his wife we'll come to that later but yeah it's finger- all kind of very pretty didn't he his fingers on the trigger so that could have even been a finger slip you just don't know but his wife is awful to be fair um, yeah so when and in go... fact some um, dog food flavours include rat and raccoon really I, I had to look at that I thought right what have we got in this cupboard there's an old rat flavour and raccoon flavour I was like oh my god yeah. So yeah, and also it's a kind of pit bull type dog as well, which is slightly banned in, here in the UK. Um, but it's just like that, that better be appetising. It better not really be rat flavour. Yeah, <laughs> pretty um, gross. Patrick Stewart like uh, wanted to sort of move back here, but he he fosters pit bulls. And, yeah, he wouldn't and, be able to, unfortunately. He can't. He can't bring them here. It, no. It's one of the stupidest bits of legislation we've ever passed without yeah, going into it. Yeah, it's, it's just crazy. It was, it, was, it was passed, the only thing I will say about it is it was passed as a knee jerk. Because there yeah, were a few high profile cases and with that and Rottweilers and there were one or two German Shepherds, but it was mainly Rottweilers and Pitbulls. And the press leapt on it and painted them as, you know, just for people who like go dog fighting and stuff. Yeah, and then basically the, 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 the government of the day just pushed through an act really quickly. <laughs> And so they're now banned, and people it they isn't. had their dogs put down and things like that. It was I reckon he should come back, you know, bring his celebrity with him and try and do us all a favour and help us ditch it. Because but anyway, my, that's my, that, that's that's my little platform. I should get off my soapbox. That's not my then. understanding of what that breed is generally like. No, no, no. I mean, and, and the, the going is always saying like sort of bad dogs are bad, just bad owners. You know, breed not breed definitely. Family dogs do turn sometimes though. You can yeah. have like a really soppy Labrador that could just turn like that, yeah. or you know. And there have been such cases, but the, it was a press call celebrity for a while. So, bizarrely, for anyone listening in a foreign country, this top, that type of dog is banned here. The closest we've got is like a Staffordshire. And very often, like sometimes you can, if you're even if your dog, like, if they don't know what it is, or if it's mixed breed, for example, if it kind of has that resemblance, like you can kind of have, um, you know, dog sort of detained and sort of like DDA things like that, um, just for looking of that type, and it could be it could be a Staffy, it could be a Dog Bordeaux, or it could be, um, any kind of bull, you know, bull breed type dog, um, not necessarily a pit bull, um, 
and it's like even you know they they look different they have different characteristics and temperaments and it's just it's, it's just all a nightmare to be honest and yeah i'm, I'm totally against it 100 yeah. percent we head anyway, off to the, that's my, that's we, head off to the playboy, we head off to the playboy mansion now with playboy bunny time yeah Pol- polanski and um take go off for the evening to the playboy mansion yeah. we'll steve mcqueen i've never been using this film that's fabulous yeah, Polanski dressed as Austin Powers, and they go for like oh, a, yeah. go for a drive, and then um... groovy baby. <laughs> She's always dancing as well, and she moves very like Uma Thurman as the bride or something like that. Mm. And not the bride as Mia Wallace. So yeah, it's very kind of those similar sort of those moves, isn't it? Really. Yeah. Um, she's kind of re- recreating that scene. The whole point here is to just get the relationships in the house, really. I mean, there there is backstory you can read about Steve McQueen, Michelle Phillips from the Mums and Papas and stuff like that. But the whole point is that she was... Now, I don't think they were in a relationship in real life, but I know Jay Sebring's, uh, Emil Hirsch's character, did propose to her. And she said, well, when I marry, I'm going to give up acting and i'm not ready to do that anyway and of course she later met roman polanski did marry him mm-hmm. and then Sebring, who i think was like a celebrity hairdresser or something did move in with them but the film is slightly hinting at some kind of like three-way thing but it's not over the top in that and i don't think that was actually the case but obviously we'll yeah. never quite know but he did live in with them I think it's quite interesting how like the Stephen King character kind of sums up saying, "Oh, she's married to him, but is actually going out with him," or blah 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 blah. And I think that's that's quite an interesting way of, of summing it all up, really. Like who's involved with who, but who's actually romantically involved with who. So. And I, just, I guess maybe you can't show 1969 Hollywood without showing Steve McQueen. Maybe maybe that's the whole idea of the film. When they said they were going to cast him, a I thought he doesn't look like him, and b he's probably too old because he's pushing 50 and Steve McQueen was only 50 when he died like 11 years later but it actually works fine yeah he looks really good I think Damon is, is you know he's, he's an amazing British actor um had lots of lots of success with various American productions um but yeah here he totally for me you know he he's the king of cool definitely yeah it's very wiggy though yeah a little bit on the wiggy side yeah uh, so we cut to the next day now, and that's another thing. Cliff said, "I'll pick you up at seven fifteen. He, you can see he ha- he's having to keep Rick on the straight and narrow. And as the film goes on, Rick's drinking too much, mm. definitely of an evening. But again, it's not turning up at work drunk or anything like that. Although he's hungover, um, but it is, yeah. So they it picks him up the next day. Um, Charles Manson turns up on the street. Now this is Damon Herriman. Damon Herriman. I've just been watching the second season of Mindhunter today." And it's the same man playing Roman Polanski in both of them. Hmm. So, yeah, he, he plays Manson a few years later in that, that film. So it's the same look, but more of hmm. a beard and just a few years older. Um, but, yeah, he sees Polanski and Tate live there and he just sort of apologises and, and leaves. Yeah, that, and that's, he... that's where um, he's fixing the roof because he drops... Um, um, uh, he drops Leo to work. Yeah. Yeah. And he asks him, "Go, can you fix my uh, my antenna?" So yeah, so we 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 kind of get get a glimpse because he just sort of jumps jumps on a few walls to get on the roof, quite swiftly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he's a stuntman. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, yeah. Uh, and we actually see when he goes in the shed, we actually see the flamethrower. I I, I spotted. On I, I didn't view. notice it. I spotted on second viewing that you're like, oh, actually, just just in the corner, you actually see see like it's in shot. You actually see like. Uh, Leo's flamethrower that he had. Yeah, and you work out, yeah, because all of that geography is used later as well. He has to go there to get it. Yeah, okay. That's what I mean. This film's just going to need to be watched so many times. He goes into film uh, a pilot called Lancer, 
this is this is um is this the Timothy Oliphant um character? Yeah, I mean we get the scene where he's like uh, in in he's, dress he's in the, he's in uh, his trailer first. Well, yeah. he's in makeup first yeah. actually, not his trailer. Coughing his guts out. You did think if we joked about COPD largely because Chris got COPD and OCP mixed up in, in the Robocop <laughs> two episode, but um, he actually I mean, for, yeah, throwing throwing that shoe letter, it's it's, it's easy done. And Chris is just finishing qualifying as a nurse, to be fair, so he's working with these terms all the time. But we did have a good laugh at his expense, to be fair. I did think of that during this film. I was thinking, has he got the beginning of some sort of lung problem? Because he is coughing mm. a fuckload, isn't he? Yeah. Um, he's in he... quite a bad way, and he's got his head in some ice to start with. Yeah. Ice water. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, I just felt like, I, cause by this point, this is, you know, you're not about, maybe about 40 minutes into the film already. You know, you've seen a lot of smoking, so you do sort of think when he's coughing, you, yeah, I, <laughs> that kind of constant, like, you know, do you think he should maybe stop smoking the cigarettes when he's constantly smoking? While he's... Yeah, he's going through them as well. They're, they're always either smoking one or lighting one to smoke, aren't they? Yeah. So many scenes start with them taking out a cigarette or whatever. Sam Wanamaker, the other thing I noticed uh, about this is we focus a lot on the wardrobe here, and there's two points to it. And I think this explains the six-month uh, time jump later, but I'll, I'll explain that later because it's only just occurred to me and it's not quite relevant here. But they talk a lot about what they're putting him in. Now, forget the facial hair. That's a different discussion, and we'll talk about that later in the film. But the jacket, they want to look a bit more hippie-ish. And, of course, Easy Rider came out the previous year, yeah. the film that basically stopped Lazenby having a long run as Bond because he saw that and went, all oh, right. Um, so I think that the, it, the film is just picking up on changing trends in Hollywood. We don't want you to look like John Wayne or like you're in Bonanza. Mm-hmm. We want you to look a much more modernised version, much more in line with either what we're seeing in counterculture films or actually there's a, you see some of that in Spaghetti Westerns as well. So I found that all quite interesting. But again, I had no idea this was Nicholas Hammond. And it was only when I saw his name afterwards, mm. I was like, yeah, I remember it being announced now. And I must mention that to the other two because he was Spider-Man. But I forgot all about it. Yeah, it looks nothing like it. But yeah, he's basically going to go and film a scene. And the whole emphasis of this scene is really, I will have to slightly address it here. It's about him learning not to be a leading man, but to actually be a character actor. Yeah, turning yeah. In, like becoming the role rather than being, yeah. so it'll be like, yeah, yeah, becoming more learning about that character. And, it, and it's it's a little bit, you, you think, you look at the trajectory, a lot more famous and a lot more successful, but mm. go and look at the trajectory of like, Clint Eastwood's career. Also, a bit of a silly question, but the bit where he's got like his face in bucket of ice, is that to do with obviously trying to get himself out of the? Um, he's hungover. He's hungover. But also, yeah. is that to do with like helping your skin to tighten up? For example, it might kind of make you look yeah, a bit I, more useful, perhaps. I've not thought of that. That's actually quite possible because they're a little bit over the hill in age, aren't they? Yeah, yeah he's still, Clint. you know, he's kind of like, moving up past his prime, but he's kind of, you know, he was a leading man, and now he's kind of coming back to it as well. So is that maybe trying to make himself look a bit younger, perhaps? I, I, don't I, know. I, I get he's just in deep distress. He can't stop coughing if he's hung over to hell. Mm. Basically, he drops it in dialogue later that, you, you know, you, he's talking to himself and he said, you couldn't have had three or four. In other words, I don't think it's the, that he drinks every night. It's that he's not having three or four, he's having nine. Oh, God. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Nine yeah, he's, whatever he's having nine or ten. Be, nine <laughs> margaritas or whatever just enough that he, he's turning up the next day but he he doesn't start intending to do that he's just a bit lonely 
he gets a bit too drunk, and it's the next day he's like, "Shit, that's followed me," and I'm I look and feel rough. Mm. Um, and he, yeah, you might be right on the skin tightening thing because I mean, Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio is about forty five now. No, it's a year ago. I think he was born in seventy four. Um, Brad Pitt, I thought that a few times. He is definitely very cool in this film. But there were a couple of shots, particularly up at the ranch later, where he shot slightly under the chin and you know the neck and all the rest of it. And you go, yeah, you you are actually knocking on a bit now. So they're, they're just a little scene, bit past shirtless on the roof. He still got it. Phenomenally in shape. <laughs> it reminded me of when you saw Thor with his shirt off in the first film. Yes. Did you, did you go to your happy place? You know my thoughts on that. <laughs> well, yeah, no, it's just one of those things, isn't it? You know, again with the character as well, you've got like the the physique as well, and it's just it's you know it's all kind of part and parcel of the same character, really, isn't it? So he's the professional of the two of them, though. Mm, exactly. I mean, like I say, see him in the car with Leo and without Leo. Yeah, he's he's the more kind of professional. When, I think, he, yeah, when, with, when he's on the clock, he's professional. Yeah, exactly. He's, he's still trying to, despite having you know his his best years kind of behind him, as it were, his most famous and iconic role behind him. You know, he's still trying to make a go of it. He's still trying to be professional right up until the end. Um, you know, he's, he's got to sort of learn his lines, put a good performance. You know, do his best acting, do the absolute best he can in that role, no matter now, what. Here is where I think I think this is where um, Kurt Russell turns up. Yes. Yeah, this is a, a flashback, though. That it's when he's on the roof. He kind of has. Yeah, sorry, yeah, we, yeah. Sorry, we see him go home. We we see him go to Leo's home. Go up on the roof to fix the antenna, mm. and then we get what we initially think is him back on the set. For yeah. a moment, you think, "Oh, he's driven in later because he's going to pick him up." But then, when we cut inside, Leo is dressed in black tie. Yeah. So it's it's and he looks younger. His hair is like slicked, and he's he's. It's basically a few years before. And late at the end of all of this, we're going to see him on the roof, like reminiscing on this. Mm-hmm. So this is a flashback. You're absolutely right. Yeah, because uh, you said like, oh, any, um, oh, there was sort of, sort of, some sort of. Um, he asked whether he can get a job, but it's like couldn't because of, um, you know, it because so so uh, do, doing the production. He's like, oh, okay, he, you know, he understands. So he kind of like he thinks back to of that time of that incident happened. They're they're, they're doing. Um, an episode of um, the Green Hornet. Oh yeah, that's right. Which way round do we see all of this? This is the Green Hornet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, you're right. This is where we see the Bruce Lee bit. We'll come to in a minute. But he he has to beg Leo to keep yeah. him on the set because he said that he murdered his wife. And we get the flashback to them sat on a boat and he's holding some kind of harpoon thunderbolt style. Yeah. Yeah, it is a little bit thunderbolt, um, isn't it? I think that's deliberate because I'm sure he was wearing a red. Uh, yeah, it's very much like orange. Um, and his wife is just saying, you know, four hours on this shitty boat with shitty company, and she's just really busting him over it. <laughs> Rebecca Gayhart, that is. And he's got his finger on the trigger, but it doesn't look like he's firing. He's just sat there, kind of like absently almost, thinking just about soaking it, soaking this mm. all up. And then it just cuts back, and that's it. So we never know. Yeah, yeah. it's never really resolved, is it? Did he, didn't he? I'm not even sure the film has a view on it. No, it's, it's very much kind of incidental. Almost. It's like, yeah, you know, he's a stunt, stunt actor, he's a war hero, but may have killed his wife, but that's just by the by. I mean, I mean you're not even sure that the, the the bit we see isn't actually a memory. It could be how everyone else perceives it. That's it. You don't know, do you? You might, might not have even been on the boat at that point. Or yeah. whatever, you know what I mean? It's like, well, that's, not, that's not how it happened, but that's how people picture it that that's the general like how the story went yeah maybe it maybe it was known that 
you know, all right, no, no one's ex- excusing murder. Yes. No. Indeed, what happened? But maybe the that is kind of the public perception was she was awful to him. Yeah. We know she was awful to him, and she died that day. And we think this is what it might have looked like. Yeah. Yeah. Could be. Could be like that. But yeah. So um... he is the more passive of the two characters, mm. anyway. So. We never know. He sat there, kind of inscrutable. He t- he talks less than than Rick does, even in scenes that mm. they're together. So um, he's just a lovely, calm. Because when you look back to something like Ocean's Eleven, he was always active and moving mm. and eating, and you know what I mean. He's a lot more passive in this film. I really like it. it it's a film you only get from an actor once he gets to this age. But um, uh, yeah, then he he sat on the set in black tie, ready to double for double for Rick. With a bad wig on top of his own hair, yeah. and Bruce. Yeah, that, that, that looks really wiggy, more so than Steve McQueen. That's deliberate though, because it's a cheap TV production. Yeah, obviously, it's done with um, a budget. <laughs> now, this is all. Tr- this is true to the point of view that um, he was on the Green Hornet as Cato, Bruce Lee, and he did uh, train sort of celebrities privately as well. Mm. He did train Sharon Tate for that Wrecking Crew scene. That is accurate. Yep. Um, and there, there's been. Well, some- yeah, because he was a. Um, as well as being, you know, famous martial artist, um, he was actually a dancer as well. Uh, Bruce Lee is always like was he the cha cha champion in Hong Kong or something like that. That's right. Yeah, yeah, he <laughs> or, was. Um, so ballroom dancing dancer. champion. Yeah, ballroom dancer. That's my uh, one fact about Bruce Lee that I know, having only seen a handful of his films. <laughs> um, well, there were only a handful. I mean, he, what what did he do? The Big Boss, Way of the Dragon. He, he died quite young or something, didn't Fist, he? Fist of Fury. I think he died Enter during the Dragon. Uh, yeah. Enter the Dragon. I think I think there's another one. I think there's like a... there's five. If you go and buy a Bruce Lee box set it, that doesn't have Enter the Dragon in it, so you get his Far East films, you know, Golden Harvest ones. There's five films in there, but one of them's a rehash. It was a bit like Trail of the Pink Panther. They did it without takes, mm-hmm. and a, and he dies early in the film. So Game of Death Two isn't really real. Game of Death was meant to was his real passion project, and he died whilst making it, so they had to retool that. And then you got three others, which is. Uh, Fist of Fury, the big boss and way of the dragon, which is where he fights um, Chuck, Chuck Norris at the Colosseum in Rome. That's the funniest. If you want one, that's like <laughs> Epic a battle. good laugh. <laughs> uh, it's yeah, they spend ages warming up as well. It's kind of amusing, but he, he goes to protect this sort of Italian diner that's run by like his family in Rome, mm-hmm. and um, it's really funny. It's quite a funny film, but. Um, yeah, so there is some. There's been some complaints over the way he um, portrays Bruce Lee here. What he says in his defence is, he says there is some evidence, and it was in his widow's book and all the rest of it, that he did talk about beating um, up Muhammad Ali. Ali uh, still called now. He calling him Cassius Clay in 1969 is not accurate, but a lot of the press still were. They were still refusing to use the name he'd chosen for himself. Mm. So it wasn't unusual to see reference to Cassius Clay in 1969, even okay. though. Yeah, I did kind of wonder where the, where the line was there. Yeah. What the, the Bruce Lee doing it is kind of a sign of disrespect, but maybe he did, or maybe it is the fact that if, if a famous boxer changed his name today to something Muslim, you would still have people absent-mindedly calling them by the wrong name for a period of time. Yeah. Back, th- back then, he was also seen as a draft dodger. I think also, um, it's also, oh, we, we used to call him Cassius Clay, so sometimes it's just like, oh, we're just not, it doesn't sit right for us just yet to stop. That's the thing. Yeah. If, if, you know, you think of somebody like Mike Tyson, he, he converted to Islam years ago. I don't know if he still follows that. I don't really care, to be honest. But I'd known him by that point. 
for 10 years as Mike Tyson. Yeah. And there was talk of him changing his name to like Malik Abdulaziz and stuff like that. He obviously didn't. But had he done, it would have taken me a while to like bed that in. He'll still forever be known as, as, as um, Mike Tyson. It's like Cat Stevens, isn't it? It's like, you know, well, yeah, he's got Yusuf. It's, it's like, well, well, is he Cat Stevens or Yusuf Islam or whatever, yeah. you know, whatever name he goes by? You yeah. know, I, I still call him Cat Stevens just because well, I know what I'm on about. Plus, also, I usually, when I, when I think of Cat Stevens, I think of like his older stuff anyway, when he was Cat Stevens. I mean, in reality, with, with, with Cassius Clay and Muhammad Ali thing, the only the only time I'll re- I will refer to him as Cassius Clay if he was at the time. So the first fight with Sonny Liston, it's Cassius Clay, Sonny Liston. By the rematch, it's Muhammad Ali, Sonny Liston. Mm-hmm. But so it, it don't necessarily think of it as particularly wrong in that people were still calling him that in the press and so on. Some of it was pointedly um, because they refused to accept this nation of Islam thing. Some of it was he was a draft dodger, but with a lot of people, it was simply that's how they knew and thought of him. So there is some evidence of him sort of shit talking, uh, yeah. Muhammad Ali. Um, and there is also some evidence of him being rather tough on stuntmen and things like that and, and actually injuring them. The complaint has been actually the number of times Bruce Lee was challenged to a fight somewhere and he would always very calmly, diplomatically and sweetly decline that, that whilst the complaint has been he shit talking Muhammad Ali, actually the, the more resonant complaint is him getting into a fight with a hired hand is not a fair reflection of his attitude to life. Yeah. Um, somebody else pointed out, well, it, would he really be able to beat up Bruce Lee? And he said, well, he's a fictional character. Brad Pitt couldn't beat him up. But if I'm saying Cliff, Cliff can, then Cliff can, because he's a fictional character. And I've designed him as someone who can beat him. Cliff Booth. Yeah. I mean, so, it's also, we're talking about... Um... It, it, we're talking about like a different timeline. This isn't set in the in the history that we know. I mean, in this one, Bruce Lee can be a bit more of an arrogant ass. You know, it, it, you know, it, it, there is license here. You know, and I think, you know, again, it's I mean, I, I I don't know what Tarantino is is really trying to do, but mm. I I would sort of think it's probably playing with expectations. Particularly with Bruce Lee, because Bruce Lee can be seen as like a, as almost like sacrilegious, isn't it? So it's like, how dare you smite Bruce Lee? You know, it's like, well, calm down, just have a bit of a laugh. I mean, what I what I will say, just just for diplomacy as much yeah. as anything else, that a lot of the complaints has been from Asian communities, and I think, well, on that basis, I'm not qualified to comment. I cannot tell. An Asian community, they should not be offended by this. Yeah. Um, so I'm not going to. Um, but certainly some of the complaints around him shit talking Cassius Clay, as he puts it, is there is some evidence that that's true. Mm. And I tend to just take it for what it is. It didn't really bother me, but I don't have the right to say anyone else shouldn't be bothered. It, I think the, the the story behind Bruce Lee getting actually beaten up by a, 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 another stunt guy is actually based on. Or at least a rumored story as well. Um, yeah. It's actually there, there's exactly. actually some sort of ev- well, I won't say evidence. That's probably the wrong word. But you know what I mean. There, there's 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 a, there are accounts of it. Yes, 
Yeah. Or there's like thing always supposedly like you know. If you got, we just it... talk about how it fits into the story, though, yeah, we are again seeding um, Cliff's fighting ability, which will yeah. be which will come back later on, but it will also. Um, it also, in a strange kind of way, seeds the loyalty between the two leading men, because he keeps go. If he keeps going to set and pissing people off like this, particularly those who don't want him here, mm. and you probably noticed that it's Zoe Bell who plays the wife who comes out and won't have any of this. I didn't like her when she had a big role in Death Proof, but when she's turned up in little roles like this and in The Hateful Eight, she's actually been perfectly fine. And she's got she's quite engaging, actually. I, it's actually quite funny, because you think of like these, those two roles that she's just done, Hateful Eight and this, they're two different, different, they're completely different characters, and they're both quite... Like in, in, in Hateful she Eight, well she's, she very, she's very sweet, yeah. innocent, very childlike. Here, she's proper, like, angry, angry production <laughs> lady. <laughs> She's pretty good, and she came out, and I was pleased to see her, which surprised me. Mm. But I think that's because we reviewed the Hateful Eight after Death Proof. In Death Proof, I was like, "She's not an actress. Mm. This is Michael G. Wilson feature length, <laughs> you know." Um, but, but she had that little role, and I, th- I thought she was really sweet in that. Mm. She had a really engaging smile, and she was good here as well. So yeah, absolutely fine. But again, it, without Rick being there it builds on their relationship because he's continually having to go to sets and say, please put up with him for me. Yeah. And it's going to get harder and harder as his star wanes. Because if you're a superstar, you can have whatever you want. If you're turning up on a you know. Yeah. It's like, well, I want my guy because he looks like me. I mean, it, not, not even that. He just actually just be hang around. Cause like, you know, massive celebrities have like entourage people that just hang around. Like yeah. they're, they're friends basically. So it's yeah. kind of, but then we go to, um, Sharon going to the uh, Matt Helm, Matt Helmbecker. Yes, Matt Helm movie. <laughs> the reason I called you out is Bond. What's the link here? Matt Helm's a Bond ripoff, really, isn't it? Pretty much. Oh dear. We had yeah, we had Matt Helm. We had um, Flint. We had um, oh god, many other spy spoofs of the sixties. Um, real spy crazy. This is right at the tail end of it. Yeah, definitely. Obviously, uh, Mission Impossible. Yeah. Came out mid. Mid fifties, um, yep. mid sixties even. Yep. Sorry, I, I, my notes about this film are right at the bottom, and I've I've scrolled all the way down the bottom to find the name of that radio station, and yep. I haven't scrolled back up. So excuse me, That's just right. excuse me, whilst I scroll. Yeah. Well, the right, thing, I'm done scrolling is, now. <laughs> Matt Helm was just a name to me. I knew Dean Martin was in it. Dean, I I didn't know. I love Dean Martin, but I just think he's got this really velvety voice. I really like. Mm, it sounds amazing. Voice. Yeah, I just love his singing voice. Um, I mean, it's a very dated form of music, but he's, it's very, very pleasant. It's all classic crooner, really. When you sort of think of that kind of genre of music, you will mostly go to... Um, oh, God. Ocean's Eleven. <laughs> yeah, because they were all in it. Um, yeah, he all that was kind of thing. Blue with, Eyes, definitely. He was in that with uh, Sinatra and Sammy Davis. Sinatra, that was it, yeah. definitely. Yeah, Sammy Davis Jr. You kind of, well, yeah. you kind of go to them, really, yeah. don't you? And um, Matt Monroe, that kind of era of yeah. um, Matt what, you know, singing. British, well, sort of uh, an equivalent, yeah. Yeah, um, definitely. Uh, the thing is, I first saw Dean Martin in the Cannibal Run, and he plays a right fucking drunk in that. So, and I don't know if that's what Dean Martin was like. I don't know if they're playing themselves effectively. No, he probably had a sort of a drink problem, didn't he? I, I always imagined he was a bit of a drunken playboy, so he's really living in the life. You imagine him sort of singing in a tux with like whiskey on the go. <laughs> but yeah probably wouldn't um, be a million miles away what I didn't know and I think I'm getting to we don't see the film for a while but 
what I'm getting to, there's, there's something I'll mention first about her whole visit, is that I didn't know Matt Helm was this goofy. I thought it was just a short-lived American Bond. And maybe because Dean Martin was in it, it was a touch more comedic. But this is actually really fucking slapstick, isn't it? Yeah. Well, Sharon Tate as well, because she was known well, you know, in that role as kind of like a sort of slapstick, slapstick actress as well, sort of more, more sort of, you know, for her comedy roles. She's good um, at it as well. Yeah, really good, definitely, yeah. I mean, kind of, um, you sort of see interviews. There's a little interview on, um, oh, I forgot the name of the website now, sorry, um, with Margaret Robbie about it, like how... Because um, initially, what they were going to do is they were, were going to recreate those scenes rather than insert the actual film, film within the film. They were going to recreate that scene, um, avoided, and she did all the stunts herself. Well, I avoided, um, I avoided um, any spoilers till yesterday. I mean, I seen the trailer, so I had an idea, and I had, I'd, I'd heard certain things, but I'd avoided as much as I could. So it's only today I've actually started watching like Tarantino interviews around it and stuff like that. I've never gone in as blind to a film because, like I say, I'm not sensitive to spoilers normally. I just didn't want this one spoiled. And um, I don't know if that was a good move or not in, on reaction because, like I say, I'd have done an awful lot more work for it. But I heard him say he talked about recreating the scenes and he also talked about filming little bits before the filming of the scene, if you like. Because he said, I always pictured Sharon like shooting into shot there and I almost nearly did that little bit before she came onto the set or came into the shot rather but obviously they didn't but i mean matt helm i mean what i didn't realize is because i had no conception of dean martin's exact age and he was actually 53 in this film and apparently the whole film is like he can't really do action at this point so it is people like just swooning over him and then pratfalls happening around him but I had no idea it was this goofy. None at all. Because the Wrecking Crew doesn't sound that goofy. But no. I mean, I think you know films like The Silences as well, Murders Road, The Ambushers, those are the other ones. Um, yeah. They don't sound like comedic, but I think there was always like a, a comedic sound. I think there was even like a little um, playful dig at Sinatra as well. They're like sort of one of the characters in, in, one, in one of those films. I don't think it was The Wrecking Crew, but it's like, it's like, yeah. I mentioned about putting on... Um, uh, a Sinatra record and like D Martin like gives like a passing comment about it. So there was like a little bit of a a play- playful attitude. Yeah. Ones. The other thing I just want to mention before she goes into the movie theater itself, which I thought was joyous. There was something about her watching and enjoying it and enjoying the audience around her yeah. that felt so fresh and and it really paints her as this sort of you just so young so much promise in life and just enjoying life yeah but did you notice the book she went to buy for roman that's real that's real she did go and buy the book yeah the first the first edition of do you remember no tess of the d'urbervilles yes that was it he made that film 10 years yeah, later yeah of course Nastasha, yes nastasha kinski 10 years yeah, later that was where his inspiration came he, from he couldn't he couldn't bring himself to do it um, in fact, the way history would have been different in this film, if you like, is Polanski was off um, doing a film called Day of the... I'll look it up in a minute. No, it wasn't Day of the Triffids. No, the, no, point is, the point is, he was off prepping a film in London. And when I looked that film up, it was actually made in 1973 by Mike Nichols. He, he eventually just didn't, he, he couldn't, can, he couldn't follow through with that project after what happened. So, yeah, I'm just looking for it now. Actually, he was. 
I'll find it. But it, I'll come back to it a bit later. But yeah, Test of the D'Urbervilles, he eventually made at the point where he was past this enough to do some do something like that. Seven, 1979, literally 10 years later. And it was Tate who actually got him to read that in the first place. And he would have made it with her in it. But he went for Natasha Skinsky. Yeah, that would be interesting. And Natasha Skinsky was a really sort of interesting looking actress as well. I'm just trying to say, like in these other, because I've not seen them at home movies. Um, just trying to see if there's any other Bond connection. I'm sure there is somewhere along the line. What, like Bernard Lee turned up in one or something? <laughs> you get that, but Operation Kid Brother, you did, didn't you? Yeah, you, you get all the Bond alumni in that one. You get Dolphicelli, you get um, all of them, generally everybody turning up. Day um, of the Dolphin. It, it was a George C. Scott film in the event, but it was 1973. So That was it. That was obviously, it. movie history changed as, as much as anything else. Was so yeah so she basically goes in and, and again uh, i don't know what he's saying about the nature of stardom here because no one recognizes her and she sort of says she's in the film and they take a picture but it's like stand by the poster so it's almost like a to prove it's you and b so i'll remember who you were later i do think it's a bit cheeky going up to like see a film that you're in and then like saying can i get in for free yeah <laughs> I think I've seen Valley of the Dolls. It just rings a bell, but I, I might be getting mixed up with something else. But yeah, I'm not going to pretend I've seen a load of this stuff. I haven't. So then we've got Rick coming out from hair and makeup. Yeah, so he's in like a big bushy moustache with longer yeah. hair now. And he goes and meets his co-star, an eight-year-old girl, Trudy. Yeah, and uh, for a child actress, I thought she was really good. Yeah, I think this is she, the scene with the little girl is one of the best in the film, I think. Someone today on Twitter said, this is the next Natalie Portman. Yeah, she's well, hopefully she'll be a lot better then. (laughs) (laughs) And a professional career will be a lot better, definitely. Um, Or she might appear in Star Wars down the line, you don't know. I hope she does does better than Academy Award winner. (laughs) She said a lot of of promise for a young girl. Yeah, what a poor career that's been. Uh, Oh, no, no, she's had a really good career, but just in terms of making life choices. some Some of her career choices. Not life choices, but some of her career choices have been a little bit. Some have been excellent, I'm sure. Um, depends what you like. I can t- I, I I can totally defend somebody going and doing Black Swan. The fact I didn't like it is neither here nor there. That was the Hitchcock um, movie that Hitchcock didn't make, as far as I'm concerned. I, but I can't stick it. I think it's pretentious twaddle. <laughs> but, um, and I love Hitchcock, so I don't know what that means, it, if anything. It means you don't like Darren Aronofsky, that's what it is. That's yeah. All. It's, it's trying um, to kind of, I liked know, him early on. I liked him early on, but I just grew to find him insufferable, and now I just skip him completely. But there you go. Maybe maybe I'm doing doing him a disservice there because he might make something amazing in the next couple of years, and I'll never see it. No, well, his, his last film, Mother, was really pretentious. So it got it, it got it was hitting a peak around Black Swan. I thought that was really pretentious. But um, even something like Requiem for a Dream, which I think is a film everyone should see once, but you know. Oh. You won't want to see it again. It's so fucking dark. Yeah, I've only seen it once and that's it. That's one of those films I've, I've seen. I've taken that box. Done. Yeah. And it, even things that are, even things that on paper you go, Christ, that sounds like filth. Blimey, I'll, I'll watch that. And you'll get, oh, it's filmed so desperately, sadly. It's awful. It's, it's awful. And it's great in an awful way. Mm. Um, I, so I, I, I don't think his career has been worthless. I'm certainly not saying that, but I'm finding him more of a struggle. But I can understand why Natalie Portman would go and work for him. Oh, um, sure. Better that than the bloody Star Wars prequels. But even then, she was a teenager. Who wouldn't star? Who wouldn't sign up to do that? 
And I think, I think in some cases I've misunderstood her as well and misjudged her. Because I've always talked about how you don't want to be in these films, don't bother. And then she signs to do the next Thor film. <laughs> I think, well, maybe think oh, you know, just what? And also, like, Thor's just been like a Star, in Star Wars, for example. You just think, oh, but it's, you know, it's actually her performance in them is fine. So, I just have critical reception I, around it. You I just have to kind of. broadly disagree that she was fine in them. But if you've ever watched Lucas work with actors, it's amazing any of them could get a performance out. Well, this is it, exactly. Because he micromanages them to a pathetic degree. Um, and you, you lose any kind of... You, you must go into every shot so self-aware and self-conscious that I can't believe you would ever give anything remotely natural. And yet, in the original Star Wars trilogy, they were complaining he barely talked to them at all in terms of guidance. So I don't know if it was because he was perceiving that he was working with younger actors the second time. But certainly micromanaged them. I saw an extra of him working with Hayden on some shots and it was just like, just shut up and tell him where his marks are. Do you know what I mean? Mm. You are micromanaging his every move. But um, this little girl's really good. She's just all full of life advice and stuff. She's an old head. It's really cool. And he's coughing like fucking reading some trashy book. But when he starts describing the book about someone who's injured and not as good as they used to be, he starts crying, which is the whole point of this film. It's guys that perceive themselves in decline, but actually what it is is they haven't found their next career path. Where they found... The avenues they found success in are avenues that are being closed off now, like traditional Western TV and stuff like that. But Spaghetti Westerns have come along and things like that. There are other... He can transition into being a character actor and probably still have a career and a life. And actually later we see even a marriage. So it's not over for him, but he's perceiving it as over. And he's given himself a really hard time when he flubs lines and things like that. It's it's a really yeah. great performance. So many times, so many little looks from him. I just think you're doing such great work. And of course, he's introduced to James Stacey, Timothy Oliphant, who's protagonist. I'm reading this bit. Johnny Madrid. Well, that's character. a great name isn't that great yeah, that's the best name when they're filming the scene in the bar all Leo's moves are so funny the way he's sitting back in his chair and this is really funny he, he's acting correctly for the scene but big enough that we're finding it funny because it's quite mannered I mean, I mean, I was, I was thinking like how these things must have been shot I don't, I don't know because it, it's almost like it's happening before our eyes but uh, like the camera's following them, but it's almost as if it's like pre-edited. It's really, it's it's yeah. really kind of like they, then then they fluff a line and they kind of just go back. And they even the like... way there's shots later in the film where cars or uh, I think the car backs up and stuff mm. like that and stops in a bang on in a certain point. I'm thinking they they are really spot on on how they've planned their shots. Mm. I remember when Pulp Fiction came out. I, I read com- not complaints because Pulp Fiction is lauded. But I read the observation that it's a film that's better written than directed. And actually, watching this film, he's an absolute master of setting up shots. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've always argued probably Quentin's probably better, like a better director than writer, probably. Probably agree with that now. Although I don't want him to see other... I can't divide the two. I don't really want to see him do no. other people's material. But... I, I don't think he can. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, he, he, he sees it in his head. Yeah, I think he's pre-edited it in his head. What he needs help with editing, in my view, is the whole thing, looking at the whole thing 
and just shaping the whole thing. But individual scenes are just perfect. And yeah. it doesn't ever matter when they run long. But um, yeah, he fucks his lines up a few times, goes back and sort of like screams at himself in the trailer. Mm. Um, and sort of pulls himself around. This does work. Yeah. Um, he kind of tells himself he's going to like basically commit suicide if he fucks up again. <laughs> yeah. He's talking to himself in the mirror, which again is a stylized shot because the angle he's looking at himself mm. in, he, w- he wouldn't be able to see himself. Mm. We're seeing it. It's the sort of almost the uh, American werewolf in London shot. You know where the, the 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 angle of the the angle of the reflection is right for the camera, not for the protagonist. Mm. But that's cool. Um, I think we see um, the hitchhiker. Yes, Cliff's. Uh, We've seen her a couple of times. Yeah. We haven't mentioned it a couple of times. She's waved at him or pointed to him, see if he's going in a certain direction, and, and he said yeah. no. He's clearly a bit taken with her. She does look very young. The actress actually. The actress is actually about 25. She was born a few months after mm. Four Weddings came out. So she, maybe Hugh Grant had something to do with it. I don't know. <laughs> Probably. Uh, um, yeah, no, we, we get we, we, we did get introduced to them like, uh, towards the beginning. You know, with, Can like, I just see... make an admission? What? Can I just make an admission? I giggled in the cinema at this bit because I saw her and, and thought, when was she born? And I think I looked her up very quickly on my phone, which you shouldn't do, but I did. <gasps> dun, dun, and, she, and she's 25, and I saw October 94. And I thought, when they would have stopped finishing. And then I looked at her and thought, can I see a bit of Hugh Grant in the nose and teeth? I'm joking, but I'm joking in my mind, because I'm not suggesting that's true. But then I immediately <laughs> thought of the bit in the From Dust Till Dawn show, where we did him doing the titty twister talk. <laughs> Come on in, tits, tits, tits. And I start, I start, uh, I start, God. I start, uh, come we'll on, you we'll fine you vaginas, right? Uh, well, we have, uh, we have black pussy, um, uh, <laughs> Spanish pussy, pussy <laughs> yeah. uh, we have, uh, chicken pussy if you were uh, so inclined. Brad Pitt's looking at a young girl, and I'm giggling like a fucking schoolboy. But I did, I did get myself under control quite quickly. <laughs> <laughs> but the different directions you yeah. mind. Yeah, he does pick her up eventually, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, it, yeah, they have like a little sort of like a, like a little sort of acknowledgement. So he picks her up, and th- there's a little bit of flirt, but straight away he's like, "How old are you?" Because she offers to suck his dick straight away. Yeah. Like you know, it's, it's, it's almost as if like it's a little sort of like oh payment for lift. Like, sort of mm. <laughs> um, Funny enough, for every I, I didn't trust the writer as much as I should have here. Yeah, because nothing, not everything we've been told about Cliff in the events of the film or the timeline of the film, and this is not to presuppose what he did a few years before with his wife, is actually straight down the line. So. Everything tells us he'll say no. But in the moment, I thought he'd go for that because he's been flirting with her for a while. Mm. And funnily enough, when the, the card came up at the start of the film with the certification of the film, it said strong bloody violence, and that's all it said. So um, I th- I, at that moment, I, I suddenly had to remind myself it didn't make reference to sexual content. Yeah. So, yeah, but there was a moment. And he it, it hears that she's living out at um, the Span Movie Ranch. 
and that immediately piques him that like yes I'll drive you there he wants to go to the Spahn branch yeah because he asks like to... what, what you live there like what were your friends or you know, he asks oh is so and so still there yeah, yeah George, oh. George. Um, and it, it's actually he's smelling a rat George, mm. George wouldn't let a group of teenage girls live there what's this about I think, uh, I, think it, I think the whole like, whole thing it just sounds like really suspicious like hang on what yeah you know? this was a real thing you did have these movie ranches that were at least in part used for um, the equivalent of backlot filming mm. and it, it was an overflow from another movie ranch and that was named in something I read that when that was booked out they would go to Spahn instead and obviously he worked there on Bounty Law mm. with with Leo basically so yeah they head out there it's quite a long scene of them talking on the way about you know and how much he doesn't want to be in prison and all that sort of thing and you know show me some id and all that sort of stuff she's actually quite quite a sweet natured hippie girl basically Mm. under it all obviously she's been perverted by what has gone on with manson we later find out um this this character is fictional yeah i do believe um but yeah, they get to the Spahn Ranch, and we're—I did time check. Now we're about an hour and a half into the film, and really, this is kind of almost the start of the plot. Really, um, he ins- he gets there, and we see a group of them very nervous about who comes into the main building. Yeah, um, and he insists on going in anyway. There's a lot more around it. We could talk about the scene for a very long time. Leonard Dunham's in this scene as well. Yeah, we got people um, checking him out first, and it's very much like. Uh, and it is quite tense. It's actually probably one of the tensest um, scenes in the film, which just kind of slowly builds. And you think, especially when it's like, you know, Brad Pitt. It, even though you know he's quite capable, but at the same time, the idea of all these girl, like, what are they up to? What's going to happen? What are they up to? Are they going to kill anyone who goes there? It's a little bit like when he has to get his accent to pass in in the movie theater in yeah. Inglorious Bastards. There's just that creeping, like, are they going to get away with this? Are they going to yeah. get away with this? Um, and the scene lingers excruciatingly, but in a good way. A bit like um, the Hans Lander character constantly getting mm. them to say things in Ital- you know, with an Italian accent, and you think, he's asking them again, they're going to flop this in a minute. It's very like that. And it's really um, expectation subverting, because as I say, I did not recognise that as Dakota Fanning. And without being purient, she's not wearing a bra. You can see her nipples through her top. She's talking about... Um, having sex with the old man and mm. I fucked his brain out this afternoon. So again, she played a cute little girl for years. So um, a little bit expectation subverting there, but he mm. just wants to see George. Um, the one thing the film doesn't overplays is George Spann never had Alzheimer's. He never had any kind of dementia, but the film certainly plays. He can't remember shit for more than a second. Yeah. I'm glad, I'm glad this wasn't Burt Reynolds because um from a meta point of view, it makes sense. But at the same time, although we didn't know he was going to die, he'd been in poor health for, for some years, walking with sticks and very emaciated and a lot of botched um, facial surgery and things like that. I know that at the time of recording, and do you expect us to talk, do not want to jinx this, um, we know Bruce Dern at the time of recording is in good health and about the right age. So I was more comfortable seeing him playing a poorly old man than I would have been with he, Burt Reynolds. He, he's good at being a cranky old man as well. So it's, he, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I love Bruce Dern. I'm trying to think what I know him best from at his peak. 
because obviously he was in the hateful eight and he played a cranky fucking racist in that mm. but i'm just i'm just looking through his um filmography now i mean keep talking folks but obviously if i hit on things i'll shout them out he was at he was in pat Barrett, uh, pat garrett and billy the kid for sam peck and pa uh, that's the one that stands out immediately he was in the burbs Yes. Oh, yes, of course. Uh, Mulholland Falls for Lead, the great Lee Tamahori. Oh. <laughs> Last, Man Sta- Last Man Standing, which is a Bruce Willis kind of effectively Fistful of Dollars remake. Yeah. With, you know, it's your Jimbo again. Um, going on a bit further, he was in Monster, the Patty Jenkins film with um, Charlize Theron that she won an Oscar for. Um really great and very very long career but he's about 80 now and he was Oscar nominated for Nebraska a few years ago but he, he's I think he's in his 80s now mm. and um, but I was a bit more comfortable with this than I would have been with Burt Reynolds even though Burt Reynolds casting feels like genius yeah I mean I imagine if, if it was Burt Reynolds it would have played differently like I, I, I imagine it might have been a little bit more comedic uh, I think, I think Burt, I, Ren- I, I, Burt I, I, Reynolds was funny yeah, yeah. So I can imagine it would have been like would have brought tension, 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 and then like, oh, it's Burt Reynolds. <laughs> you know what I mean? It would have, would have it would have been like a, it would have been like turned it into a funny scene just for that moment. Um, but and you can see the hints of that because the whole him having to repeat himself yeah. is actually kind of lightly funny. Yeah, and and, yeah. and, 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 and then tell them then tell them off and say, didn't I just tell you I was fucking blind? <laughs> Yeah, it is actually true that Manson encouraged the girls to have sex with him to keep yeah. them sweet so they could stay there. So that is true. Um, and actually, he does tell the right story because she's saying, yeah, we sit and we watch FBI and then we watch this and he falls asleep. And you're thinking, this all sounds ridiculous. And mm. he tells the same story. Very, very long scene. But again, we're in the heart of the Manson family. So this mm. is inherently tense. Uh, yeah, so he, yeah, he's just trying to make. So I'm just trying to make sure that they're not like abusing you or anything or anything. Yeah, uh, which they kind of are, but it's obviously it's character work again. Cliff Booth is actually a decent man with just shades of grey. Mm. So they come back out, and his tie has got a knife in it. Yeah, and yeah, they're all kind of um, the 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 they're shouting shouting at him, like kind of like telling him to get out. Which again, I noticed kind of... Tar- Tarantino turned the music up over that. Mm. Did you notice? Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely drowned louder. Out, he drowned out the abuse with music, and yep. Brad Pitt just walking along, really fucking cool. Yeah, like it just styled it out. Literally did style it out, literally, Quite literally. Because, because if, if there was anyone in it in this situation, you would be shit scared. Yeah, you know. Walking back, okay. I'll just calmly make my make my excuses and go. And, but he's uh, a war hero. He's a war, he, he's been in dangerous situations. We yeah. don't know what war that is. I'm going to guess Korea, but could have been World War Two. The film might say. I don't know. I've only seen it once. Uh, yeah. So yeah, he's got a, a knife in the uh, in in his tire. Then he beats the shit out of um, one guy till he fixes it. Yeah, he's actually a real guy as well. That's actually a real. Uh, the character he's playing is is actually real. Was actually a real part of the mask. Um, and obviously, the guy they sent down to sort of try to intervene, but yeah. he's gone. Is actually Tex, who yeah. really was there. Sharon Tex's killer. I, I I really like this. I liked I liked how he just how calm and how like badass he was. He's like, all right, well, you're gonna fix it. Good job I got a spare. You're fixing it. 
<laughs> and then just preach the shit out of him until he does. It's one of those films that could just go on Brad Pitt's reel. What could yeah. Brad Pitt do? Just show this. It's perfect. It's one of the best scenes in the film. What did you make of all this, Becca? Yeah, I think the whole that whole scene um, where he's, you know, he's trying to find the old man. Um, I was literally, again, it was one of those Tarantino movies where he sold me the ticket, sold me the seat, but I'm only going to use part of it. Um, yeah. That was like, for me, I kind of thought, oh my God, this is where the, all the gore and that was going to happen. I was kind of prepping myself thinking oh no this is where the violence is going to come in and i thought oh look away now um but it's not what the film is really is it no it's not it's really not about that at all i kind of it's kind of turned everything on what i know about tarantino movies kind of turned it all on its head but that's by the way um yeah like the whole scene where you know he goes to kind of visit his old colleague one last time sort of thing um and ends up um basically thrashing hippie (laughs) um it just kind of it was, it was really well done um, with the music as well. It was very kind of for me like once he kind of goes into like the main building, um, just as a pervading sense of dread to the whole thing. And it's just like oh, you know, what's he going to find? Is he going to be dead? I kind of expected a sort of almost um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre kind of style. Um, cause obviously, that took you know took a big influence from from the whole Manson family thing as well. Um, I just thought, oh my God, he's going to find him dead. Appropriate or, you know, as well because the. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is nowhere near as violent as people remember. It's all, no. it's all creeping dread and unease. Yeah, that was, that was kind of like the whole that's enough. You know, obviously it's, it's good to see him alive and well, but yeah, I kind of just thought, oh my god, he's going to be dead or defiled or something. You know, and just the whole how everything's really grubby and really filthy and dirty, and there are flies everywhere. You just think, oh, oh my god, you know, these people are living in a cesspool basically. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a whole sense of creeping dread of in that scene. Um, but yeah, I like that effect with the music as well, the way it's kind of turned up to kind of drown out all the abuse. Um, it was really interesting. Um, and so, yeah, the use of um, people... Oh, God, her name's just forgot... Um, just gone out of my head. Um, yeah, the use of actors like Dakota Fanning, who sort of play sort of young, innocent, child, you know, childish roles, and now very adult. Um, and yeah, no, it's just... It is, for me, this, this scene kind of... It, you know kind of wasn't what i was expected to see so it was, you know it's quite refreshing actually now we're getting to the bit i think it, that's meant to explain the six month gap i think because obviously rick does a scene with the the girl hostage and luke mm. perry who i did not recognize as luke perry at all mm. i was trying to place him i kept looking at him thinking that looks like olifant but it isn't because he's a different character dressed differently mm. And I thought it doesn't quite look like him, but it's reminded me of him. So I could not place him. He changed a lot through his life, Luke Perry, to look at. Because anyway, um, yeah, because but... like when you when he sort of passed away, I, and because I only started watching um, the Netflix series that he's in, Riverdale, um, no, and him. I was like, that's not the Luke that I remember, you know. Yeah. Obviously, it's like you know, it, yeah, he's but, wet, I mean, but, it's, it's, yeah. it still still looks good, still looks good. But I was like, yeah. surely that's not, you know. But he does this—he does this scene with the girl and all that, and throws her to the floor and everything. <clears throat> and she whispers in his ear, "This is how fragile he is." An eight-year-old says, "Best acting she's seen in her life," which is what three or four years. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he's like, "Oh!" And he bursts—he bursts into tears. Well, it means a lot. It means a lot uh, to him. I think, I'm despite ripped. everything, he's still trying to hold it together. Rip the fucking dawn. <laughs> but I think that's the I where he realizes he can be an actor a character actor he still has something to give and he was worried about being under layers of makeup and not recognized which is what him chris was hinting at earlier that 
you know, a guy that was unrecognizable under his makeup was telling him he needed to be unrecognizable under his. So although the call he gets later from Marvin, the Al Pacino character, isn't directly about that, A, it's possible he's getting set reports, but also this bit is about convincing Rick, but he's also worked on the TV show FBI, which is what convinces mm. Marvin, who we know is a fan. So, um, yeah, he's he's basically picked up and taken home and they sit and have a beer and watch FBI, don't they? Mm. Yeah, I think I think the th- the the thing with, with with the girl when she says it's the best acting he's ever seen, it's it, it's almost like a little bit of confirmation because obviously you know when you're working in the studio, everyone's like, oh, thank you, that was amazing. Uh, even Whereas though you a, might... kid, a kid doesn't lie generally. Yeah, there's a little bit of like a, a bit of purity, and then sometimes that just means yeah, they've more. Yeah, got no filter, have they really? And it, yeah, so it's just but you know she didn't have to say that to him because she she strikes because what we see from her couch, she's very. Prim and proper and formal, a bit, you know, above. above she thinks properly, doesn't she? So for her to say that, I think fucking hell, she must generally think that. And you know, she's she, obviously she's been on movie yeah. set, so uh, I I must have something else to give. And so uh, yeah. But I thought the scene we we do get reference to the acid cigarette, which will come into play mm. later in the film when they go back to the apartment. But he's saving it, Cliff. Yeah. But I felt we were stepping into. Um, his childhood because it, it's a colour television well it would be because he's a reasonably successful mm. actor but it's colour in an era where a lot of people still have black and white in fact I'm not even sure they were selling colour TVs here my father once told me that the first time he remembered seeing a colour TV it was around the time of the 1970 World Cup mm. so I'm not sure even if we had them but if we did they were rare and they were expensive yeah, I, so, I can't remember just going on by, well, like my parents and grandparents have said, I can't remember. Um, I'm sure they have a similar, similar memory of going around having a black and white TV at home. Yeah, he said he was driving through a certain village in a part of Plymouth you wouldn't know, but obviously drove, driving through a village that I know. And he said he saw like a TV, uh, like a, an electrical shop and there were TVs in the window. Yeah, and obviously that was the first World Cup in colour as well. Mm, BBC uh, Two broadcast the first colour pictures from Wimbledon in 1967. But no one would have had colour. No. Yeah. Anyway, so um, probably, yeah, late 60s, early 70s. But this is this is him remembering sitting down with his family and watching this, isn't it? FBI, these types of shows. Yeah. I don't know if FBI was a real show. I think it might have been. Was it? Was it was yeah, it, it was. Pro- yeah. It's a program now, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking it up now. Yeah, yeah I oh, no, that, that was, that was uh, 1965 to 1974, the FBI. Oh. Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. Oh, really? Yeah, he was the voice of Alfred. I know that name, and I've just looked it up. And he is the voice of Alfred in Batman, the animated series. Uh-huh. And he was Doc Ock in the 90s Spider-Man series. That's where I know those names. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, so he became a voice actor later in his life. Mm-hmm. And died about five years ago, but yeah. So I just, I just felt again. His this is his love of the era because we focus on this FBI series for a while and see a whole scene from it, and then they, you know, the format is clearly you see the crime, and then the FBI case number comes up, and they mm. sort of kind of cheer at that. Michael Douglas was in it. Yeah, and then he gets the call. Yeah, Michael that. Douglas is probably best known on TV for the streets of San Francisco. And good old chap. Yeah. Who else do we know? And it's actually uh, the scene itself is actually. David Cassidy. Yeah, even though Quinton probably shot it, but he kind of like make reference like, oh, that's a really good shot. You look at it and go, yeah, that is a really good shot. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It is, but it's a TV shot. Yeah. So he knows what he's doing. Um, 
so anyway, uh, he then gets the call from basically Mar- uh, Marvin, who's just seen that show. Yeah. And he's offered a job in Italy on a film called Nebraska Jim with Sergio Corbucci. And now we go to voiceover. They just That's the film I'd like to see. I love the posters. I love the fake posters. Those posters are fantastic. Those, yeah, the fake movie posters. I really wish they would do poster art like that. You don't rarely see that anymore. And he does, he does romanticise these people's um, homes in that they've all got tons of movie posters up. And I don't know if that would have been the case. Do you so know what back, I mean? Back in the day, I mean, you probably would have taken that as a, I don't know, sort of memento. Um, I mean, like a, um, somebody who's he's in one of the fan groups I'm, I'm a member of as well. I mean, he used to manage Empire, in, um, not Empire, yeah, the Odin Lester Square. Uh, back in the 80s and 90s and uh, back then obviously obviously it was different to actually being in the film so obviously nowadays all the all the comfort you're sent to promote a film the studios want it back please afterwards um but obviously back in those days film they were just told film artwork i'm not a great nostalgic person in that i think more than enough great films are made now to justify hollywood and you know some of the best films ever made have been made in the last 10 years or so so i i, I, I don't think that way but the one thing i'll say unreservedly is movie art is shite now Movie yeah, poster even, art like, is just you've got to look at like the, the Bond posters for the for the Bond films as well. I mean, it's just like literally it's boring, really boring. Really you lazy do. collages of the actors if it's an ensemble piece. And if it's no. Bond, it's just here's a picture of Bond. It's always um the same type of thing, you know. You know, with the rom com the sort of the leaning thing, like it's sort of like uh, I know it used to sort of rip on Matthew McConaughey like Always leaning on something. There's always yeah. that kind, that kind of thing. You always Catherine Zeta Jones in it. She or Jennifer Aniston. They always look pissed off with the leading man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's lazy. It's lazy. Yeah. Some of the, this era. Maybe they just don't think. I mean, because we're we're talking at the age we are, and we're Bond fans, which is a leg a, a long running legacy mm. series. Perhaps there is some research that says that as good as the artwork is, kids wouldn't respond to it now or teenagers. I don't know because I've never understood. Because you look at the classic era right the way through Star Wars and Indiana Jones and mm. stuff like that. Absolutely wonderful sort of Drew, Drew Struzan and people like that. Yeah, fantastic art. Although that's a later era. But yeah, I just love all the artwork here. And the one of him in Turn Lisa Valis, where they both look absolutely fucking delighted is brilliant. <laughs> they do look delighted, don't they? Turn Lisa Valis is having a proper lol at something. <laughs> having a good old time. <laughs> I know. That's another really film I'd like to see. He goes off and does... Um, Four films, basically. Mm. And um, that made me smile. Because, In six months. Uh, well, that's the Italian filmmaking industry. I would just... It's, it. back to back, it's, almost, it? it's like Roger Corman. Well, we got the sets. Let's just film something else. Well, what? I will fucking make it up. Oh, my God. <laughs> go along. It's cheap. We'll do it. It's fine. The whole point is he's he's got to go... He's got, There's got to be a time gap so that he can go and rebuild his career. The whole first act was about the saving of him, mm-hmm. really. And obviously, we need Sharon Tate to become to get to the point she's eight and a half months pregnant and quentin iconically i don't think wanted her walking around pregnant for most of the film so that's the point but i can understand on first viewing how you would go well what was the point of all that then if we're just going to jump forward yeah. but there, there is a point so yeah the, the voiceover is simply that he did these four films what they were um very sort of low budget films but then the dollars trilogy was really low budget so i mean it's not unusual he's working with sergio corbucci correctly is described as probably the second best or second most famous maker of spaghetti westerns after leone um 
this is this is the yearly only made once upon a time in the west which is just a masterpiece which we'll cover in our all the westerns <laughs> and um and he comes back with a wife he comes back there's and, two salient points and, and, and uh heavier <laughs> after gorging on the italian food italian foods and just no discipline really um what i love we see shots from the film uh, including like a freeze frame of like a, a jump over a bridge and just mm. cliff that's cliff in the car um what i there's some tarantino touches here they walk through but we see it a few times in the film that he stylizes people's mm. footsteps being in time with each other in sync and then you often cut to a wide shot and they're not in sync it's just a little stylistic tick mm. um he does all that uh cliff's pushing all the massive amount of luggage and he's basically the salient point here is, is he's married the he's married somebody can't remember if she's the daughter but she's somebody anyway an Italian woman who's he's brought back with him and he's got a, he's going to get rid of Cliff he's going to sell the yeah. house and buy a condo because he doesn't have a lot of money um, so yeah so that that's the salient point there basically and they go out for a final night of heavy drinking basically before Cliff's out of work yeah that's the point. And uh, we get a bit of what Sharon did that day with little time stamps, stamps August the 8th, 1969. She goes out for lunch somewhere. She goes out for drinks in the evening. Who's with her? All accurate. People like Abigail Fol- Folger were with her. Yeah, so. e- even down the fact that she that she felt like um, how hot she felt because it was like really, she felt really sort of un- unsettled because it was really hot. Hottest day of the year and she's very heavily pregnant. Yeah. Like I said, she was eight and a half months pregnant when she was killed. Um, so a heavy night of drinking. Um, when they came home, I thought we were going to go Wolf of Wall Street. You know where like he yeah. tries to get home completely fucked up in that film. Yeah, that um, was fabulous. I that's that scene. Oh my god! Yeah, when we, he we arrived home safely, wrecked. and I was like, no, that's not how it happened. When he looked at the side, yeah, he got home safely, and the car's actually wrecked. Um, when <laughs> that was so steps, funny. There's dozens of them, and when you cut to the side, it's about three. I'm going <laughs> to watch the Wolf of Wall Street again now. We will do a Scorsese season one day, and I can guarantee the Wolf of Wall Street will be in it because I've only seen it once. It will happen. What's What's the next point? They come home at the end of the evening. Cliff takes out that cigarette, doesn't he? Yeah, they both like um, sort of. Yeah, they come back. He says, "Oh, tonight's the night. I forgot about this." Let. Let's do this inside. So he's gonna what? Take the dog out for a walk in the woods while having a smoke. But, yeah, the dog is there as well because yeah. the dog has basically been keeping the wife company while they go out drinking. You, you yeah. see him pick him up for the pound as well. The, the dog's been kenneled for six months mm. or whatever. What then? He goes out for a walk. Yeah. Uh, Leo, make Leo makes a big massive margarita. <laughs> um, <laughs> and. Um, yeah, the uh, and uh, the Manson family uh, show up where they would have gone to Sharon Tate's house, but obviously, um, obviously, no. This fictional character lives in the street, so it all unfolds differently. Yeah, Rick Rick spots them and basically sort of like goes they... out and gives them shit. <laughs> yeah, and he is a dick here because actually he doesn't know who they are, and they're like, "It's all right, we'll back up." What are you looking at? <laughs> you know that kind of stuff. He's not a dick to anyone in this film, except here. Yeah, but then again, they, they are looking, they are very intimidating looking bunch. And also, so also he's pissed as well. It's a private road, and he's drunk. And and um, they're and they're looking suspicious. They're like obviously looking, obviously like um, <laughs> the redhead one. He, he says like something expletive, expletive to her, but, he, yeah. but she's like obviously looking like very sort of aggressively at him anyway. So a bit sour. Yeah. Um, and then they basically back up 
all the way. Mm. And then they start talking to each other. And I, I've seen some misreadings <laughs> of this scene because I literally, this was one of the dumbest takes I've ever seen on a Tarantino film because somebody said something along the lines, and I can't quote verbatim because I can't remember, but they said something along the lines of he was making a, com- a comment about um, entitlement and movie violence and film TV violence and how um, they're blaming all their failings on TV violence and how rich it was coming from Tarantino who'd made his name that way. And I just think you've completely misread the scene. They're just they're making this shit up as they go along. And and they're just like, well, here's some vague lame excuse for why we do that. But also, it's like, it, this is the Mansons, though. Like, why would he sort of make... Obviously, the point of the being the Mansons is that they're misguided and they have the wrong take. Exactly. So, so it's just like... You know, I mean, go and, read the, go and read the Helter Skelter theory and you'll just see how fucking batshit after this was. Like, I mean, they're, 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 they went there on, on, on um, Charles Manson's... Say so. Yeah, <laughs> go kill whoever's in that house. So like, so like they're, they're and, and they and they come up with this hairball scheme. Is it like, oh, wouldn't this be meta? And it's like, you know, I'm, I'm weird as no, it's looking at thing. That's fucking stupid. And obviously through the through their sort of eyes of like, well, everything's just fascist and all this kind of thing. Yeah, that 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 they sort of see justified for that for that violence. You know, so let, let let's let's sort of make a statement. Let's go and like, you know, a, a bloodshot read of counterculture, really. Yeah. But um, so they recognise him. That's the point. That's that's yeah. whatever his character was called. Jake. What was the character called? Jake Cahill. That's Jake yeah. Cahill. You've just insulted. Well, he's older, but but yeah, it's him. He was in a show in the fifties. And again, I don't know the accuracy of that because people misremember things. I mm. thought he was still making it till not that far before the events of the film. But it doesn't really matter. Um, so they go back to basically kill everyone in his house now instead. Mm. Yeah, leave the leave the leave the um, Polanski house alone. Could be. I mean, they could they could they could still. I mean, they're still told by Charles Manson, so they could like just go. Well, we'll do this first and go there. Couldn't yeah, they, they but... might still might still have done, I guess. But I love the fact that Cliff comes back now, and I didn't know where Leo was originally. I thought I thought it was a continuity error. Like, have you forgotten he's home? But he's at, he's out he's out the back on the yeah. on, on, in the pool listening to music absolutely oblivious to everything and i love cliff goes to feed his dog and suddenly the cigarette kicks in <laughs> he just like waves his finger and then suddenly starts staring at it it's like you get a the <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> yeah here we go <laughs> yeah where do we go from then they, they come in the door basically the three of them don't yeah they? uh one's bailed um obviously um, one bailed immediately yeah. oh i left my and, life in the and that, the one who bailed was the one who actually one who testified you actually want to cooperate with the, with the police? I think she, she, did she did she bail in real life? Because I thought this was just the events of the way the film. She's just been shouted at by Leo, so I didn't know she bailed in real life. I don't. I don't think she didn't bail in real life. But then she don't think she was. But she was the easiest to break. She yeah. She wasn't in the. I don't think she murdered anyone. I think she was kept on watch. And I don't. I think. I think. And I think. I mean, in I, reality. Yeah. They killed somebody who was harmlessly sat in a car outside. Yeah. Then they went inside and killed them. And apparently there's been changes in testimony because one at one point they tried to pin it all on one of the women. And I think it was the one who came out with all the TV stuff. And when that fell through, Tex admitted years later he did the stabbing. And he stabbed Sharon Tate, I think it was 16 times. 
and they said five of those stabbings, five of those sort of penetrations with the knife were in and of themselves fatal. Um, there, there is a, dis, a real nasty, there are rumours about what they did to her that aren't true. Um, although when they said do something witchy, which that line is actually said, they actually painted the word pig on the door in mm. her blood. But yeah, the, the rumours about what they did to the unborn baby, and that's not true. But she was stabbed 16 times. But here, of course, um, what do we want to say about this? It's quite a knockabout action sequence, really. Yeah, and it's almost like a wish fulfillment of like getting revenge for like a past injustice, really. That's probably the best way I can sort of yeah. contemplate it. But yeah, you have like Cliff, who's he's hard, and obviously established half man. Like like before, when they have like, oh, quick, get Tex, and let's if like think, yeah, I mean, okay, I I don't think Tex can match Cliff. <laughs> I don't think Tex can Cliff. I think he just knocked Tex, like, on his ass back then. But, obviously, he, he's, he's there now face facing a gun. And he's almost kind of, kind of, like, kind of just remembering who they are. He's like, oh, hang on, I remember you. <laughs> and he's like... And, and uh, you know, and he said, like, oh, I'm the devil. He's like, no, no, no. It was, it was, it was something much more stupid than that. <laughs> was it something like Rex, was it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think the thing is like killing Tex. Tex, that was it. Tex, that was it. <laughs> yeah, it's actually quite funny. Um, and then almost like it's almost as if like he um, he hasn't been really been tripping. He's still sort of like when it mattered, he sort of went. He ordered his dog to attack. Yeah, and very subtly as well. Just a little, yeah. just a little slight noise. Yeah, that's it. And the dog straight in there. It's really cool. I yeah. like all this. I really won't say about much about it. He, he uh, the dog basically keeps him sort of occupied. He eventually stabs him as well. Um, the woman he absolutely kicks the shit out of, and one of them gets outside, um, and Leo has to deal with. Yeah. And basically, uses the flamethrower. Yeah, okay. and I love the fact Leo is panicking like fuck. He's like, fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like there, like she she has all the guns and like sort of wailing around her and like and firing it in the air. Yeah, yeah. Just... I did wonder at one point, just for a split second, I thought she might catch him running away, just shouting, mm. just flashing the gun around. But no. And that's it, basically. Um, for a moment, I think Cliff is killed, but he's not. He's just injured by a knife mm. in the sort of hip, really. Um, so he's taken away by sort of paramedics. And Jay Sabring comes out to mm. the sort of gate of the Polanski house and just says... You know what's happened, and he's just saying, "Well, these guys broke in," and it's like, "You're Jake Cahill, you're Rick Dalton, yeah." Minute, and they get talking, you? and it's like, "Do you want to come in for a drink?" And Sharon Tate comes over the sort of intercom where mm. you would, you know, where you when you were driving yeah. in, you would talk to them, and he talks to her, and they're let in, and he just meets them for a drink, and obviously she survived, and she's a couple of weeks from giving birth to what? Well, they did actually name the child. It would have been Paul Polanski, Paul Richard Polanski. Um, he was named and buried with his mother. Oh. Um, no. So he survived. End of film. Now I was about to walk out, and then I remembered Becca told me not to, and suddenly we get uh, uh, Samuel Jackson turns up and recruits uh, Rick Dalton <laughs> into the end, <laughs> and he says, "I'm putting well, together. I'm, 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 I'm here to talk to you about the drunk <laughs> fading actor initiative." <laughs> yeah, so we get um, the only uh, fake drunken actor in the world <laughs> you just don't know it yet oh, yeah, I just don't know it yet. the red apple advert which i fucking loved 
That was a brilliant advert, wasn't it? And at the end of his photo, he's like, who the hell took this photo? I, I hate it. Oh, my God. <laughs> he's talking about how smooth it is, and he's saying because they've been around since 1868, you'll see Jake Cahill smoke them. But, of course, now they're factory-assembled and very smooth and all the rest of it. And when, he, finish, when he finishes, no throat burn, that was the term, no throat burn. It's <laughs> not filtered, are they? How harsh are unfiltered cigarettes if they burn Fuck. your throat? I, I, I wouldn't want to touch him. You wouldn't get that kind of advertising now, would you? you just, obviously... Exactly. You didn't get that generally now. You used to but... get it on. You used to get like the Flintstones being sponsored by cigarettes and stuff. <laughs> sponsored by Laramie. Yeah. Smoke and smoke Gilburns. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, I love the fact that the moment they yell cut, he throws the fucking thing down and he's like, "You gave me this. These taste like shit." And this, <laughs> thing, this standee of me, it's got a double chin, and then he knocks it over. It's great. Also funny. And we've got the uh, the radio, the Batman radio advert as well. Um, Burt Ward gets the credit. You know, the producers should thank Burt Ward. The credit comes up just before you hear it because they thank Burt Ward and Adam West. Yeah. And I'm thinking, why is that? Is it because Batman was referenced earlier in the film and then suddenly we get, that was a real contest and obviously it's their real voices, mm. so it's not impression. Yeah, I was like, oh, wow, that's um, so, yeah, them. Was, was, if you can guess the number of the Bat phone, come and meet us for lunch and we'll give you a... She did a tour and a colour TV. And a colour TV, yeah. I would love to enter that competition back in the 60s. That would have been cool. Yeah, it would have been amazing, wouldn't it? Meet Batman and Robin. Awesome. Yeah, that would have been super cool. And you win a colour TV, even better. Cool. Film 9 for Quentin Tarantino. Now, we argue this. I don't see the argument, actually, because I've I've seen people post, including Charlie, going, you've done 10, I paid twice. It's like, yes. But when he's he's talking in the context of his career, what he's saying is he's only going to do 10 projects. Kill Bill. I I, I don't don't understand why... It was part two. I don't don't understand why people are arguing this, because, like, a year or so ago, they they were saying the exact opposite. They were saying, like, oh, yeah, you know, he's only done... If You know, like... The same, the same kind of people, are, you know, are saying like, "Oh no, well, I paid two tickets, so you did two films." Yeah. It was years ago. Your bank balance is probably. Are, 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 the, are the same? Are the same type of people who would who would have sort of like made the point? No, that was that is one project. He did one film. You know, or or, or at least accepted that. Do you know what I mean? I I I find that baffling. It's ten films for us, but it's nine films for Quentin Tarantino. It's nine projects. Yeah. I don't see it. I don't see it. There's not a dichotomy there. That's actually entirely consistent. I'm only going to do 10 films. He turned up on a movie set nine times to make a film. He wrote nine scripts for films he directed. That's absolutely consistent. Oh, also, ju- yeah. also, he, he can do the fuck he wants. You know, if he decides to go, exactly. you know what, I'm going to do one more, well, fuck it, you know. He, he, you know, he, he'll make his ten films and then go, actually, I'm going to make another one. You know, because people are saying it's that. Just... I mean, Lizaki has retired many times and he's still making films, so he can do what he wants. Steven Soderbergh retired last week, the week before, the week before that. He's <laughs> still making years. films. I, I, so I, writing and producing in the background. There's no inconsistency there. He, he, for, t- for nine films, read nine projects. Yeah. You, you can't, you know... On that logic, the hateful eight has just been split into like four parts on Netflix. That's not four of the slots, is it? No. So it's it's entire yeah, it's ten films. It is ten films to us, but he is going to do ten distinct projects. Which I wonder where he's going to go from here. I don't know. It's um, one song, or maybe love letter to sixties golden era Hollywood. I, I did one of the things I did think about when it comes to this film was 
I, I reckon if because he always talked about sort of writing books, didn't he? So I thought I reckon if this was like a book, I think this would probably be quite. Um, you know, I could see this working. You know, like when I was thinking, I'm not sure if this works, but if it was like a not like a novel, I think this would probably work, be quite quite good, especially for like a Tarantino first as well. But actually, there's quite Tarantino, and it, you know the, the the way it the way it is just feel very much it's a love letter to Hollywood, and and, and also like you don't have the the stuff like the story plot structures that people may have with this, or and you can give all the uh, background you want. Yeah. So at this point, she turned up to the Wrecking Crew, which was a, a you know a late sixties yeah, yeah. series, which starred so and so. Funnily enough, that also starred so and so, who was in this. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You can actually you can actually explain all the references we're having to try to pick up. Yeah. So yeah, um, final thoughts. I'm not going to add very much. I, I'll just simply say that I think this is his most good natured film. I think I could have just lived in this world. Tarantino is the sole director who has the f- effect of taking me over to the exclusion of all else when I'm in that mindset. When we did the series originally, I was listening to the soundtracks in my car, uh, you know, because I still had a longer drive to work back then. So I was listening to soundtracks all the time. I was watching the films multiple times. I was going onto YouTube and watching his interviews with Charlie Rose and stuff like that. I was watching DVD extras and so on. And I think with this film, you know, I deliberately went and did something else today because I, I needed to watch Manhunter because I'm reviewing it anyway. But the, there is no other director that can do this to me, that I came out and I just suddenly, a bit like after Kill Bill, I was watching stuff like Lady Snowblood. I didn't want to go and watch Exploitation. You know, I didn't want to watch Grindhouse films afterwards because the film was crap. But, you know, there were you do start sort of looking at what the influences are and reading around a bit. And this So this film completely absorbed me. It was two really great lead performances and just an absolute, you know, spread of of influences of people he admires, of people he's wanted to work with, of people he wants to remind us he has already worked with. And just even, you know, that greatest his element that we even see Western sets. Yeah, all right, they're TV Western sets, so they're lower budget. But even just remember, I, I even worked in this genre as well. We even saw a Nazi film. He did a Nazi film. And yet what we've got is something that's totally probably com- close to something like Pulp Fiction. But the leading characters are nicer people, generally speaking. And obviously it doesn't have the same sort of vignette style that we're not constantly pinging between different stories. We're just going to sit and enjoy these characters for what they were. I need to see this a lot more to to know what I really think of it is my enjoyment of it today, simply that it's lived in my mind since the moment I walked out of the movie theater and maybe there or the cinema and there wasn't much there when I come back to it. I don't know, but I just know I could, study this film for years not for rich rich themes and everything else but just for the world how accurate was this bit was that that we saw the chinese theater at some point oh right that was there then was it you know and so on when did buildings come along when did films come along actors he references oh did they actually really work all right that's a fake film but did telly savalas actually work with any of the spaghetti western guys do you know what i mean and for that i just think this is a really really rich piece of work it misses sally menke the guy is increasingly unfocused but having said that he has sort of now settled around the two hour 40 mark you know sort of i think inglorious bastards was just over two and a half django was about the same length as this i kind of get a feeling as if if it turns out if his 10th project 10th film turns out to be his last film it's going to be like 
four hours long. Well, no, <laughs> be a part one, part two. Because, no, we settled around this length. Pulp Fiction's about two and a half hours. Jackie Brown's about the same. As you go through his career, Death Proof is a bit shorter. Yeah, it'll be around two and a half hours long. The Hateful Eight is a little longer. I think it's about. I think in its theatrical cuts of two fifty or something. Um, but he settled now around the sort of hundred and sixty minute mark. But actually, I do wonder. It, it is like he. This film would have looked like cut by Sally Menke, but we'll never know that. That, and I'm still happy with what I'm getting, which has made a beautiful film out of an area that really only has 20th century history. We're not looking at like the Old Bailey and shit like that. This is not. This is a town with a lot of sort of cheap, fairly cheaply assembled buildings that actually. It's all very new, isn't it? He's given a hint of love to. He's evoked the era. The soundtrack's terrific. And there's lots of hidden meanings in there. We've already pointed to Paul Revere, big on the soundtrack, didn't know anything about him, went and had a look. Lots of things I'm not sure we need, but again, there'll be stuff in what the Steve McQueen character said where you just go, actually, I'll go and have a look at that. There's something in, there's a reference there. Okay, yes. Um, And that's it. So I had a really good time with it. I think it'll end up among my favourite films of the year, but I cannot be sure until I've had possibly even three or four viewings of this, but I'll certainly have a second. Yeah, not much really more to add other than what I said at the top of the show, really. Um, it's, it's one of those ones, it's a good onion type of movie where you've got all the layers and you can stop peeling them away um, and, you know, spotting all the references, doing a lot of research. Um, I mean, if, if you're, you know, as I said at the top of the show, if you do want to do a deep dive to this, I recommend reading everything you can about Hollywood in sort of the 50s, 60s and that sort of thing, even going into the 70s, because um, arguably, especially also reading around like the Manson family murders as well, um, because, I mean, the, the main argument there is pretty much that's what kind of stopped, what kind of brought the whole kind of hippie era, the free love era, to to a, to a shocking halt, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I'm still kind of undecided as to where to rank this, probably at the moment somewhere in the middle. Um, going through it, noting all the references, um, it's very... i say it is, you know, as it's, it's Chris um, sort of pointed out, it's very much kind of like a book, pretty much. I think it's probably would be best in, in book form. Um, and then you can go in the index and check out all the references. Um, brilliant performances. Um, I would quite happily see um, Leo um, and Brad Pitt and, you know, and many more films together. I think they have a wonderful pairing um, and they're kind of a new sort of dynamic duo in the era you know, that we've seen in, in the 70s with um, Rob Redford, for example, and Paul Newman. Um, definitely they're kind of very much of that um, of that stable, I guess. Um, and there's a lot to be said for their, their two roles here as well. There's a lot of mirroring kind of goes on in their, um, in, you know, in their in their real life careers. You know, they're not too far from each other as they've pointed out earlier as well. Yeah, so again, with the super, the super violence kind of not coming to right at the very end, that's kind of the only sort of few scenes that I really winced and had to kind of look from look out from behind my hands, um, especially involving dog violence as well, which is anything involving animals, I'm just just going to reel at, unfortunately. Um, it's very verbose movie, um, lots of talking, lots of dialogue scenes, but that's Tarantino's name, known for that, for sure. Um, peak foot fetish as well, I just, if you don't like, if, just stay away, generally. Um, At least there's a scene where he's like sucking on the toe or something. Oh, uh, yeah, he kind of, he does you know, try and stay away from that one. But yeah, it's, it's literally kind of, you know, if you want to see all the tropes, they're all in this film, you take them off as you go along. It's quite easy to do. Um, yeah, I'm still kind of undecided as to where I'm going to, where I'm sort of going to you know, place it in terms of the ranking. Um, I think maybe when it comes out on home release, I should probably watch it a little bit, a little bit more. Um, it's sort of prohibitively expensive at the cinema right now. Um, if you force me to rank it, 
which is unreliable for all the reasons I've talked about for like over two hours now. I've got it provisionally in fifth place. Mm, yeah, I don't know. It sits between Kill Looking Bill around the middle one. somewhere, it I think we'll get there. It sits between Kill Bill 1 and The Hateful Eight. Yeah, I don't know. I'll, just, I'll, I'll stick it in nebulously not, in the middle. It's not as good as Inglorious Bastards. It just isn't. But it's a real light, enjoyable, fun film to be around. Until the last half hour or so. About ten minutes. But no, it's, it's quite busy. And, also and then I found out well. I don't know if we would need um, all the colour man's and business as well going on in the background. But as I say, it adds a flavour to the film, adds a texture to the film. And it's kind of very much what was... You know, it was one of the defining moments of the of the late sixties. Um, so reading around, doing a bit of some horror, um, reading around the backdrop of, of what goes on in the film as well. And yeah, it's, I guess it's a really interesting study of um, golden late, you know, the end of the um, golden era of Hollywood. And as I say, it's very much um, Tarantino's love letter to it. And yeah, if he just echo what I said at the start of the show, if this, you know, if he sort of decided, oh, this is going to be my last show, that's it. That, he goes out on a high. Although we know the Golden Age... I know that he won't, but... The Golden Age of Cinema actually peaked in December 1969 with the release of Honor Her Majesty's Secret Service. Well, (laughs) that's separate, I think. (laughs) By Hollywood, we mean Europe. Yeah, (laughs) American Hollywood cinema. I I know technically it's American American funding, but I think Bond films are aside from from what what we know as, as Hollywood cinema. Of course it is. And I'm kidding anyway, because uh, it's not part of the Golden Age of Cinema. But it is so, a special. Do you? <laughs> 69 was a pretty good year, just because it produced the no, best I, I would have loved to have seen that alternate um, Teddy Svalas film. I would have quite liked to watch that. What, where he, looks, like to see. where he looks just delighted. Where they haven't that poster. I'm just going to look up Rick like Dalton. Hang on, excuse the typing, folks. Rick Dalton movie posters. I'm just going to see if I can find them online. That's The one for... Um, the one for uh, the, the other film he set up, what was it? Uh, the one with Ringo and Gringo. I forget the actual... Ringo. Because obviously, yeah. Um, Operazione Dynamite. Yes. <laughs> Operation Dynamite. That's fabulous. Uh, That's a that great name. I'm just looking for the one he did with... I'm looking for the one he did with Telly Savalas. If I find it, I'll share it with you. But that's yeah, it was really good. I really liked it, that poster. Yeah. But, um, yeah, four films he did that summer. Uh, yeah, I mean, as I said before, I, I struggled the first time around, so, I, you know, as, as to Dave said, I think it is one of those films that just, it, it requires time, and I think it's just one of those films, it's not a very plot film. Sorry uh, to interrupt, but I would you say probably more than any film he's done? The Hateful Eight's in the same league, in that you watch several hours of just talking, and you're like, okay... What's the point? Why is it taking so long? But mm. I think more than any other film in his canon, this one's going to need time. Yeah, definitely. Um, fun fact, I did, I did watch. Uh, we watched the uh, the extended version of Hateful Eight, the one that like, plays like a miniseries in four parts. Um, oh, of course. Yeah, you've got a, a VPN. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Recommend the version on UK Netflix is still just the original yeah. film. Um, so I don't know why if it's on Netflix, just release it. Anyway, but anyway, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I, you know, I think uh, my opinion of this will probably change over time. It requires, um, it, it just requires sort of another chance to just soak, soak things up. It's just one of those films. Uh, you know, this is Tarantino's, uh, I think, sort of love letter to old school Hollywood, to those old school type of leady men um, that we don't see anymore or, or we, we're seeing less of. Um, 
I, you know, I, you know, we got lights of uh, Caprio and uh, Brad Pitt, but you know, who knows? Maybe, maybe there will see a resurgence. I don't know. But um, yeah, the soundtrack's great. Uh, probably so many songs I got, you know, that that played throughout it that you think, oh, you know, I should probably listen to some old old school records because you know you kind of you know. You kind of forget how many great songs out there, you know. It, you know, unless you don't search for them. So that's one of the good I, things about I mean, I've never, I, I've never wanted to live in another era. I mean, my, my dad said to me when I was a bit younger, he said, "You were born twenty five years too late, really." He said because you love Muhammad Ali and you like Led Zeppelin and stuff like that. And I said, "Yeah, but I've still got it all." Do you know what I mean? Mm. All right, I'm never going to get the, the the build up to like an Ali Frazier fight but I can still watch everything and I can still listen to everything and I've got the comforts of modern technology. But I have to say, this is an era that suits me. Music, this and going into the very early 70s, mm. music and sport and things like that. Some of my favourite things are from this era. This era of the late 60s era of Formula One cars, are, they're fucking dangerous, but they're beautiful. Um, so this is an era I'm, I've got a natural affinity for anyway. And whilst I'd rather live now than any other time, if you had to put me in another era, this is kind of where I would belong. Mm. So it naturally speaks to me anyway. Yeah, uh, it, it is one of the, it's, it's one of those films that you just soak up atmosphere with. Um, yeah. So I yeah I'm I say I think I'll probably be I'm thinking well I already am a lot fonder just by talking through it all you know and sort of going playing with the point, ideas yeah there is more point to it than you would think yes but but yes but uh, i yeah i think in fan in fairness my issue is there was no real story uh, but i don't think that was the objective particularly so uh yeah i think that i think that's it i think uh that's my final thoughts um though to be fair there's no plot and i don't know anything about this film well, I think there probably is a plot, Chris, and there's probably loads going on, but we're just too thick to, like, pick it up. Understand it. Yeah, and it's because we've gone in uninformed. Unfortunately, you've done all my fun facts as I've gone through the film. I've got a list in front of me, and right. you mentioned them, you mentioned but, but, them, you mentioned but, them. But, but thankfully, uh, we informed ourselves during the film, so that'll do. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I've had some more planned out um, that I've done some random reading on, and unfortunately, you've done them already <laughs> well, okay well i i actually have a fun fact tim roth and james marston was actually film scenes for this film but uh oh right got, yeah uh tim roth was james gonna, marston yeah uh, tim roth was gonna play like uh, cyclops no. oh, I yeah, cyclops, <laughs> yeah. no uh, i get him mixed up i get not to look at but in names i get him mixed up with james masters so oh, from Buffy. So, so I have to Angel. suddenly go. Do do we mean Cyclops? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah Tim Roth was going to play uh, Jay Sterling's uh, Butler. Uh, I don't, oh, know, oh, I don't okay, know how that yeah. would have fit, but uh, really else... broad, probably. Yeah. Yeah, probably. And James Marsden was going to play uh, Burt Reynolds. So, uh, so Burt Reynolds was going to be in the film acting, and Burt Reynolds, the character, was going to be in it as well. That would yeah. have been a bit. Oh, well, uh, you don't know what stages it would have been. It could have been something that would have been added post his death or something. So he felt yeah. like he he died a month into filming. Actually, yeah. um, if if they had literally shot that first, he'd have been in it. There was no sort of terminal illness. He had a heart yeah. attack, so he could he could have he could have been in it if the shooting schedule had been different. But there you go. It happens. So yeah. So um, there's. There's that, and um, 
that's but that's about only fun fact I I have really I mean I'm I'm just glad that next week we're going to give up this silliness and go back to like a stone cold classic. <laughs> So, anyway, or on that shortly. As for social media, you can find me at the Pasty Kid nineteen seventy six on Twitter. Uh, you can find me at Cinema Trucks on Twitter. You can also find all the old um, shows on Cinema Trucks Code at UK. We are available. All of them. All, all of the them. old episodes. Yes, that's what I meant by shows. Episodes. When we stop recording, folks, me and Chris are going to schedule part two of the summer review. So that's coming soon. Oh, part two. We're going to schedule. I don't know when we're recording it, but we're going to find out. Just after we go off here. I've still yet to see Toy Story 4, quite a bit, but I think that's the only one I've not seen. Take a tissue. <laughs> Why is that sexy? There's nothing remotely erotic in that film, Chris. You'd be wasting your money. <laughs> but yes, you can find us on Twitter at Expect Us a Talk. Um, you can find us on Facebook, Do You Expect Us a Talk? Um, drop us an email if you like, Expect Us Talk at gmail.com. Um, you can also find us on uh, YouTube, on iTunes, well, Apple Podcast, and Spotify, and Stitcher. Anywhere you're podcatchers usually exist you'll find us on there most places also if there's a film series that we haven't yet covered that you would like to cover either mention you know drop us a line on twitter or mention it to us on facebook or drop us an email let us know and we'll add it to our ever-growing list of film reviews or we'll or we'll just say to you we've already thought about your bell end (laughs) you're not (laughs) ready you're not paying attention Uh, actually someone once said to me when are you going to do the indiana jones series Uh, i've done it you lazy done it already (laughs) did it already it's there and then they went, oh yeah, let's mm-hmm. listen to those. I was thinking, well, they weren't very good then, were they? <laughs> well, it does get to the point. I mean, I'm, I'm sure now playing have a similar kind of problem where, like, they've done so many and they've been going for such, well, easily long, much longer than we have. Um, but no, they're, they're oh, back catalogue. About 11 years in the current format. Yeah. yeah. Back catalogue is huge, so, you know, you're getting three of them, so. Yeah, no, absolutely. We're not quite in that position, but someone did forget we did Indiana Jones. No, it's and, fine. Th- and I know who it is, and I know they're listening to this, so, like, shame on you. And I bet you're, I bet <laughs> you're blushing terribly. They're blushing terribly now. It's fine. <laughs> Sometimes I think of a series and, oh, we've done it. Oh. <laughs> really, I, I I don't want to watch stuff by people like, you know, Pulp Fiction and that. I want to watch stuff by people who've done quality work, like the Monster Squad. <laughs> which means Becca. Dead or Alive, you're coming with me. Which means, do you expect to talk or return with Robocop 3? <laughs>